The Koi Gig Pod has made a new signing. Your goalkeeping coach is your god. Emma Byrne is joining Kathleen and Karen this season. Keep up to date with all the WSL action every Tuesday and subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. It's Jaron Shane with you all the way through until 10 this morning. It is international weekend, so therefore there's nothing happening in the world of um, men's soccer anyway. It's like everybody is saying something and nobody's saying anything. I love international weeks because they drag on for, for so long and yet, and yet yeah, the, 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 you're trying to find something to change the news cycle every single morning, but... Uh, you end up having the same conversation probably five or six days in a row but that's what we love because we're football men um, and football women so that's what we like It's but this morning I guess when they put out different people in front of the press every single day at least it changes the uh, that's why embargoes exist because at least we can kind of change the news cycle every single day Ivan Tony talking about the Arsenal Twitter <laughs> it's like wow I think that's that may well be the bottom of the barrel. This is a long for international week. Yeah, long-standing I, feud. I get, look, I get. I mean, I get it, but it's not very interesting, is it? Is I, it? I actually read the back of the paper this morning, and I thought it was a bit juicy. Um, so, for anyone who isn't aware, this is the the tweet that Ivan Tony put up at the start of last season when Brentford beat Arsenal. A long time ago. A long <clears> time ago. We're rehashing old stuff here, but Brentford beat Arsenal two 0 at the start of last season, and Tony tweets after the game something to the effect of "nice kickabout with the lads." Um, Clearly, this ruminated in the Arsenal players and Mikel Arteta's minds for uh, for the entire intervening period because um, I think a couple of players maybe after another game that season when Arsenal returned the favour and won there was a couple of tweets sent to, with the exact same phraseology as Ivan Tony's original, tweet. yeah, very original. And uh, <laughs> what about you? I also did that thing that you did to me. I'm clever now. Yeah, it was playground stuff. Uh, and then obviously Tony's been asked about it in the pre-match press conference ahead of the Italy game in the Nations League for England this week. He's in the squad for the first time. It's probably not something he's arse talking about, but then yeah, I think he, he gave them a little bit of a line. He bit um, the, the fishing media. Um, he gave them what they wanted and, and said, yeah, it was a bit cringe when he saw the, the Arsenal players. It was funny. Again, the set, yeah. Yeah, it was funny the first time and then cringe the second time. And now it's, yeah, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing from an Arsenal perspective. Um, okay, okay, you're talking me into this. I'm, I'm now interested. <laughs> He's calling Arsenal embarrassing and they're top of the league. And yeah. it's, is it a small club mentality? Are Arsenal a small club? Text us now, 0879180180. That is small club mentality stuff, though. Like, you shouldn't be getting bogged down by a Brentford player's tweet and really letting it affect you. Or else, um, or else like all of these uh, elite sports people who are separated from each other by, you know, hair's breadth, uh, they require every tiny slight to be turned into motivation. I didn't even... I actually didn't... I, it wasn't that offensive either, really, was it? Like, nice nice kick about with the lads. It's a little bit sarcastic. It's a little bit of a, a jokey slag of the opposition. But, I mean, it's not end-of-the-world stuff. But clearly it's been sitting in... Uh, Mikel Arteta strikes me as a man who would hold a grudge. Um, like, I've only seen a little bit of the all or nothing, but, I mean, he, he, he in, seems like a In the pep who, school. Yeah, 100%. They've never forgotten anything that's ever been written about them, ever. Yeah, this is this is John O'Mahony fancy Dan stuff. I, I think Arteta's probably brought this up in the dressing room at some stage. Um, I'd be shocked if he hadn't. Um, and yeah, like Tony's, Tony is. Tony's laughing. Isn't it weird that that all matters? <laughs> that's the weird part about this, that it seems to matter. 
<laughs> and it all came from one little tweet. And like, how, how many of the Arsenal players who were actually very important were played in that game, the original one? Like, yeah, that's the that's the thing. Uh, a lot of them are gone now, and and it's irrelevant. Uh, it's the start of last season. This is how long ago we're going. Um, but I'm on. I'm in the Ivan Tony camp here. Um, I want to make this as big a thing as the Vardy Rooney Tweetgate affair. But uh, sadly, it's not going to reach those levels. Um, yeah, it's just a little bit of childish behaviour from Arsenal's behalf. I like Tony. Like uh, seeing him speak during the week. Uh, I think yesterday he was in front of the press and like he was talking about getting that call from. Well, Southgate rings Thomas Frank, the Brentford manager, to offer him the opportunity to tell Ivan Tony that he made the England squad for the first time in his career. He was driving into training, Tony, I think, when, when Thomas Frank called him. He was a little bit behind time for training, so he, he sees the call coming in from Thomas Frank and he thinks, oh, I'm in trouble here. Tardiness has, has got me a fine from the club. Uh, but Thomas Frank, uh, he answers the phone to Thomas Frank and, and he proceeds to tell him that he's in the England squad, which right. is obviously a lifelong dream, so uh, he's buzzing. He seems like a really likeable guy, Ivan Tony. Quality footballer as well. Um, so delighted for him to get an international call up but I mean um, yeah the, the tweeting stuff is just that's the press looking for a little and finally question to keep the keep the, the papers rolling this week Callum Chambers and uh, Bernd Leno played in that game for Arsenal <laughs> this is how long ago this game was I mean th- things things move on things, I don't know maybe maybe you need to add a little bit of spice to try and sell that fixture out the next time I don't know I, I mean and it's back page in a couple of days <clears> well there's nothing else well. going on because it's international week yeah that's the point like <laughs> Like even Eric Dyer, like how long ago did Eric Dyer jump into the crowd against Norwich? I mean, it that seems was, like a lifetime ago. It was, it was a couple of years anyway. It, it must be twenty twenty. I know it wouldn't be twenty twenty because because of COVID there'd be no crowds pre COVID. Pre would it be pre COVID? Probably is. I mean, look, uh, time is a flat circle. Time, yeah, it's, it's time is irrelevant since COVID started. Um, but if you told me that was like three weeks ago I would go yeah if yeah. you told me it was three years ago I would go yeah that makes sense time is only a construct of human perception anyway uh, as we all know so um, yeah I, I don't know like the Eric Dyer <laughs> he, he was asked about it obviously in the press conference for England yesterday would you do it again because uh, he was asked about abuse in stands he said at a recent Chelsea Tottenham game a lot of his family members were receiving uh, vitriolic abuse uh, in the f- and he, he actually pointed out that it was abuse from both sets of fans which was interesting as well um, and it's it's got to the point now where his family no longer attend matches where Eric Eric is playing, and which is it's a sad state of affairs. Like he he said yesterday in the press conference, he didn't he didn't want to touch on it too much, but he also again gave the press their little couple of lines that uh, kept the story flowing. And he said, "Look, if I had to do it again and jump into the crowd to to protect my brother, I would." Um, so look, again, it's probably an interesting line. It's ten seconds at worth of Eric Dyer um, speak. That has uh, given us a full a full page in some of the papers this morning. Uh, Aaron Ramsey says he should never have left Arsenal, or still doesn't know why he he had to leave Arsenal. These England golden kids have um, they have Ramsey. some sort of he's, you know he's also Welsh, but sorry uh, sorry the the British uh, yeah. golden kids have have some sort of aura about them. I an, think e- an easy mistake. <coughs> I mean, they, they you know they go on it, like it, I just think that there's something about the English slash Welsh slash Scottish players that uh, there's a bit of an attitude about them they certainly think when they look back in their careers I, I was I was unbelievable Aaron Ramsey was an unbelievable footballer he had, he had a couple of years where he was would you call him world class? No, I wouldn't say world class. Like he world was, class means he's going to get in uh, the best 11 yeah, in the world he's on that level below he was on that level below for a year or two um, he was very very good for a couple of seasons scored a lot of goals yeah um I don't know how effective he was as a, as a 
controlling a game. But you know, a player who scores a lot of goals is very, very valuable. So, but the, it, it's it would be easy for Aaron Ramsey to say that looking at Arsenal now, if they were you know seventh or eighth or ninth in the table, Arsenal are top of the Premier League. They've done some good things since he's left. Um, Arteta's finally got the band back together and, and and sorted some things out at the, at the club. So I was always under the impression that he had kind of forced the move over um, salary mm. issues and wanted to get paid better. And <clears throat> somebody else came in and said, "We'll pay you better," and he was like, "Yeah, okay." Yeah, and I think I remember at the time I'm talking about going to Italy is a, a good life experience, a bit of a cultural change, a cultural shift. So yeah, scored ten goals in the seventeen eighteen season for Arsenal. Yeah, I sorry, mean, he scored seven goals in the in the Premier League and four in the Europa League in the seventeen eighteen season and ten assists. So obviously it was uh, important in terms of um, goal involvement. Yeah, and that's over thirty games that season. So that's not a huge amount of games. Mm. <clears throat> Yeah, like I don't know where he's where he's getting these ideas from, Aaron Ramsey. But always interesting when a player does a does a wide ranging interview and, and says I shouldn't have left or they shouldn't have let me go or uh, has has different notions about how their life has turned. Scored ten goals in the thirteen fourteen Premier League, only played twenty three games with nine assists. So again, very effective in uh, not many not a high number of games. Mm, yeah. He was all. He always seemed to be involved in goals. Might probably slightly injury prone. You'd be saying, yeah, yeah, and that was probably partly the issue with with, with him leaving Arsenal as well. That you don't want to hold on to a, to an injury prone player. Jack Wilshere was 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 often the same. Um, yeah, but he, he's one of those people. Aaron Ramsey. He seems to have a good brain, and and I'd like to see what he does after the game as well. When he retires, does he go into media? Does he go into coaching? I know Wilshere is involved in the Arsenal Academy, isn't he as well? So interesting to see where, where Aaron Ramsey's career takes him afterwards yeah uh, look again it's international week players giving interviews um, uh, Colin wants us to explain this though Ramsey Wilshire, Walcott and Oxlade Chamberlain uh, good young overhyped players who <laughs> didn't quite live up to the hype that's it are we, bl- are we blaming Arsene Wenger here is it Wenger's fault that uh, none of these players I mean did Theo Walcott not live up to like it wasn't his fault Sven put him in a squad yeah yeah uh, you know, he as we know, he scored more goals in the Premier League and the Champions League than Zinedine Zidane. Well, of course, the famous the famous fact. Um, I, I'd have it as as a bit of a coincidence. I know Colm isn't going to like that, but almost a coincidence that these four young English lads went to pot after the Arsenal days. Like maybe they got the best their best years at Arsenal in, and and, and it took too much out of their bodies. Um, I I think that there's probably a lot to be said for uh, not having the whole of the club's future thrust onto your shoulders at a very young age, and um, you know in other in other more successful clubs who are winning, they would have played less, there would have been less expectation, and so therefore the good stuff that they did would have been I, d- I don't know maybe maybe Jack Wilshere got kicked too much in the ankle, and that's a completely separate issue from what happened with Theo Walcott and Oxley Chamberlain, like yeah. And there's an issue that you gotta hold. You gotta. Oxley Chamberlain wasn't at that level, really, was he? He's like a very good, competent Premier League player over a decade, who again has had loads of injury problems. Yeah, yeah, something similar. I'd like to see not the same path being trodden by Ethan Wanieri, this young 15 year old kid who came on for Arsenal last year. Yeah, it, it, like everyone's like, oh, isn't it great? The kids play, and you're like, is it really that great for him now? How does he go back to being a normal 15 year old yeah. for the next couple of seasons where he now thinks, oh, I'm supposed to play, I'm supposed to be part of the squad every week, and that's not going to happen. It's rare you see a 15 year old seen as, as mature enough. Yeah, obviously, you're the 16 and 17 year olds who are, who are seeing it. He had to use a different dressing room, I think, as the senior players for, for child protection reasons. So he was in his own little room while the rest of the team got changed. Like, which is which is which just shows how young he is. Yeah, do you know? Do they think that's true? 
No, we've set the record. Look how great we are. I have it on my on my CV now that I brought young talent through faster than anybody else. But like, did they really think it through? Yeah, the the thing with Wanieri, he seems to be a player, but like a prodigious talent. Anyway, he he has been always playing above his. Is this something age to group? make sure that he signs a long term deal with them so he doesn't go for a free when he turns eighteen or something? Is there like some weird ulterior motive here that's actually financially motivated as opposed to actually keeping yeah. the player's career long term? Like, I don't know. It just uh, there was a celebration of this thing which uh, is record-breaking, and so therefore it's going to be great. But is it always great? No, uh, like maybe Arteta wanted the the uh, the lure, the luster of having played the youngest ever player in the Premier League. The record's always going to be broken. These records always are. Harvey Elliott's looked like it wouldn't be broken for years, and here's Vanieri doing it. Um, like, apparently he scored in some scouting game. Was it 8-0 or something? He scored all eight goals for his team at his age group. Um but got the scholarship. He, he like he's a really smart kid as well. Apparently, would have got a scholarship nearly on his academic capabilities alone. Um, really bright kid, and, and maybe that's why he's been brought in. He, he's he's mature. He's bright. He, he gives off an aura of someone that's not quite, not fifteen. Yeah, I mean that's all. And look, that's all great. It's just that um, you never know how someone's going to deal with the hype and the pressure that comes now with this, like yeah. which was completely unnecessary. You know, like. They're three 0 up. It's oh, it's easy. You can go on at three 0 up. It's like, but you're three 0 up. You don't need this. Like there hasn't been an injury crisis. This isn't COVID. The squad's doing great. You've real depth. Like, I I don't know. I think we've become accustomed to young players though. Like with the hype that, that followed the likes of Wayne Rooney, for example, when he was sixteen, was at a abnormal level. I don't think that hype would be around a player like that again because we're so used to I, big talents I coming through. Do you think, think it's worse? Well, I, I think I think it will be worse. Yeah. Like I I think like Wayne. Wayne Rooney went as a teenager and was about to dominate a, a major tournament, but mm. but for injury, like I think, and th- you know, like again, all these cases are different. But like, it would 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 Wayne Rooney wish that he had come through as fast as he did, or had been given a bit more time to acclimatize to the pressures of being the most famous teenager in Britain? But then, what what is the age? What is the right age? Like, is it 16? Is it 17? Do you wait until they're 18? You could argue if you're good enough. If you're old, if you're there's good enough, you're old enough. There's a difference between being good enough to play and there's a difference between being old enough to manage your life and all of the stuff that comes with it. And, like, making sure that you've got the right people around you. Yeah. And uh, it's sometimes it's in the club's interest and sometimes it's in the player's interest. But, like, those two things are not always... The Venn diagram overlaps between the, the club and the team, but they're not a circle. Like, the club yeah. are interested in you as an asset and wringing out of you everything they possibly can. And you have to be interested in protecting yourself and making sure that you aren't uh, in any way um, taking unnecessary risks. Is playing a 15-year-old against men unnecessary risks? I would say it probably is. Like, But then it's it's the manager's responsibility to, to play the player when he feels... They are ready, as in. Well, what's the manager's real responsibility? Who's the manager's real responsibility to? Ultimately, when it comes down to it, who does he answer to? To the board and himself, and himself as well, like, and, and the fans, I suppose. Uh, not, never the fans, really. No, no not it's, it's not the fans because the fans don't sack him. But like, I, that's all. Like uh, his his paycheck is connected to making sure that the board are happy. Okay, the fans can turn on a manager and they can get him sacked. And I understand the point you're making, right? But, like, his job is to make sure that the club's shareholders make more money. Mm. And uh, and 
I don't know what the, I don't know what the thinking here was, but it, like there's just an automatic. Yeah, isn't it great? We've set a new record. Is, that, this, is that the manager's job? Constantly going forward. It's the manager's job not to win trophies. Is, uh, obviously, no. winning money is no, is no, no, no. I mean, that's like some romantic pie in the sky notion of football in the in the seventies. Yeah, but it should be manager's other- job is not to win trophies. Manager's job is to make money for the owners, and the owner's job is to make money, and that's what this sport is. And you're a Man United fan, so you know that. Yeah, but the, but the the director the the club's directors need to be fairly in charge of the chief executives need to be in charge of 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 making money by winning trophies you're going to make the club more successful and ah, more financially Champions League qualification was the be all and end all as we saw like Wenger's Wenger's the last I don't know how long it seemed like forever was it was it eight years was it longer was it, I don't know but success was qualifying for the Champions League because mm. they were rebuilding the stadium and that's all that the owners cared about like uh, success has changed yeah success is now making money because that's what the point of the owners come in and decide this is an asset that's undervalued I'm buying it and I'm going to make money off the back of this and at some point I'm going to flip it for 5, 10, 15 times what I paid for it mm. and so the manager's job is to make sure the owners are happy really yeah like in an ideal world the manager's job would be to win trophies but that's la 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 now yeah but my, my point on, on Arteta and Wanieri was that like Arteta's not going to play the kid if he doesn't have those people around him that you mentioned. You know, like I'd like I'd like to think any decent football manager wouldn't do that. You know, if he, if he's got de- if he doesn't have the, the people around him, if he doesn't have the right attitude, if he doesn't seem mature enough, he's not going to get playing. And that's that's what you would hope. So I'm getting grief now for not. Oh, this is only Arsenal. Why aren't you complaining about Liverpool doing the same thing? Like I mean, uh, it's just happened this week. But if if uh, Liverpool were playing Harvey Elliott too young, because Harvey Elliott not miss a lot of time because of an injury. Yeah, <laughs> like was he physically ready for it as well? What age was he when he made his debut? But this is the thing: is everyone's physical development not different? Like Harvey Elliott and Ethan Manieri aren't physically the same. Um, they weren't physically the same as Wayne Rooney. Uh, like, there's no, there is no magic number. This is the age you should make. And I, I don't, I, think I would agree with you, right? So I, I don't think I, I think you're when you're saying what is the age is like I, I don't know. It, it definitely is case by case, but it just feels like 15 is too young. Like, what about the 13 year old kid who played in the north? For was it Lenavin recently? The youngest ever player in the UK, I think. Beaten was it on the yeah. white side's record? But like 13. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and he and he looked 13. By the way, like he was a he was a 13 year old looking 13 year old. It is it is amateur football, right? Well, like really, it is. No matter what they say, it's amateur football. But he's and still playing against against grown men. It shouldn't shouldn't be happening in a competitive it league. Shouldn't be happening. North. Like even in the GAA, you're trying to stop that happening. You know, like yeah. there are rules now. There is like and under the guise of burnout, they're like you can't be doing that. Just can't be doing that. Yeah, and you don't really see it in in Gaelic football too much. Like you'd see maybe in club in the club game, you'll get the odd the odd sixteen year old. Uh, supreme talent coming through but generally speaking I think clubs around the country are fairly good at nurturing talent and letting them play the minors before they break into the senior team because especially in Gaelic football you have to have developed physically obviously I remember Norman Whiteside playing in the World Cup uh, he was actually 17 50 lads um, breaking Pele's records uh, a man child like Rooney again like in the end all that stuff caught up with him the injuries in his 20s caught up with Norman Whiteside like if Rooney had been held back another 18 months and had a, his body had been allowed to physically develop, would he have been a better player in his ah, late so. 20s and 30s? I mean, he still finished as a record goal scorer for club and country. You can't say he, you cannot say he fulfilled his potential. Like, you just can't. No, but... I mean, you just can't. And would he have learned to become a better professional? 
Potentially. That's, I mean, the, that's the bit. Like, as in he was thrust into the limelight too young. Well, he, he clearly didn't have the... <clears throat> he didn't have the capability of dealing with the media pressure, which he's talked about the in, insane levels of anger that he felt at... Who was the... Jonathan Ross, right? Mm. He comes up in the either the column or the book. Uh, they were making jokes about, about him and the incidents with the uh, prostitutes. Like, would he... You know, would he have fallen into the issues that he later had if he had actually been protected properly as a 16-year-old? Like... These, I, I think that like, yeah. I don't remember which manager it was who gave him his debut, but I'm sure he's delighted. And the goal that he scores against Arsenal to that ends the invincible run, doesn't it? Yeah, but like it's history and it's amazing and it's an incredible career. And Wayne Rooney has come out the other side of it, but loads of other people get broken. Like if you look back at uh, Ravel Morrison, is still massive clickbait for every Manchester United fan of a certain age because they think he was the next coming of. George Best or whoever it was and he is now playing football again at a reasonable level but never fulfilled his potential because whatever right thrust into the limelight pressure and expectation the Wayne Rooney is a unicorn who, who comes through this but not everybody makes it that far yeah and some people can't deal with the pressure I understand that but then like Ryan Giggs was thrust into the limelight at, at 17 he was clearly through and went on yeah, we, we know the infidelity and all the issues that they came about in his personal life that he admitted to in court but was that to do with the fact that he was thrust into limelight at 17? I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. I think some people's personalities are their personalities. It's true that some people's personalities are their personalities. But if you had been hanging out with men in their late 20s and early 30s when you were 17, would you be the same person you are now? Well, R- rich men who have access to drink and the the trappings of celebrity, would you have been the same person as you are now? From my, from my, and th- this is obviously not on anywhere near the same level. When I was se- 16 and 17, I was playing for my local team, Monaghan Town. We won the Ulster Junior Cup, very successful team. Going out drinking with the lads after the y- matches? Yeah, and like, I remember doing, we won the Ulster Junior Cup maybe three or four days before I did my 50 year summer exams, and I was the youngest on the team. And, and were you drinking three or four nights before your exams? Yeah. And was that, in retrospect, good for you? But then the, the rest of them drank for the. Uh, following two or three days whereas I did the one night and then studied for my exams do you know so I, I and I don't think I don't think it affected me negatively personality wise I think actually looking at it like now I'm the what cap- if there'd like, been what if there'd been like the promise of a massive contract like and a fast car unfortunately Town FC didn't have the money do you know what I mean though what we're talking about here is like, yeah, like yeah it's the celebrity that, that, that changes and it's wealth like yeah, it's yeah. life changing wealth I, I, I talk about this a good bit but Stephen Bradley did a Saturday panel with us before he got the, the Shamrock Rovers job where he talked about going to the cash machine and seeing his balance and like mm. his motivation disappearing straight away. He was like, well, I'm rich now. I don't need to do anything. And he was very highly rated. And I would say those types of outcomes are more likely when players are exposed too young. And I just think that, that I think for Arteta, this is a bit of a vanity thing. I think that's a personality thing because some people would, at 17, 18 would look at the bank account and of say, course it is. that is giving me motivation to work harder oh, because oh, of the look, money I can see. Of in course, that it's, 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 uh, it's not uniform across. But I think that the players who make it out of that, mm. having been exposed super early in his own changing room because of child protection laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. That's like, and yeah, that's when you it, say it, it makes sense yeah. because he's a child. Yeah, I assume that's under six maybe or under 17 that I, players yeah. have to do that I don't, know, I don't know what the age is but um, it, that that just highlights how, how young he is but I mean if they're doing if they're doing everything right and if he if, he, if Arteta feels he has the head on his shoulders um, but Arteta doesn't know and Arteta's not going to be held like, accountable you, if, if that player if, if he 
so Arteta is going to be the Arsenal manager for two and a half, three years, more than likely. Mm. If he has an amazing career, he'll get seven years. And that kid will be 22 and may not fulfil his potential. And Arteta won't really be held accountable for that or, or trace it back because it's not his job. His job is just to churn, churn, churn. Who's good? Who's good? Throw the shit at the wall. If some of it sticks, great. How Who's about, next? But what about the likes of, say, right, Michael Owen at 18 was, was a world superstar. Like on the Off the Ball Roadshow recently, he said that he felt like by 21 he was past his best. So if, if that is true, then some players need to be started at 16, 17 because they've only got four or five years before their plateau. Yeah, it's a very, again, very difficult scenario to, to work out exactly. Like Michael Owen's hamstrings obviously prevented well, yeah. him from being as fast as he was uh, in, in a later stage of his career. And so I don't know. Could they have managed his career by not playing him so much? Mm. Would his hamstrings have popped anyway? Like, I don't know. It's, it's such a... It's interesting talking about. Yeah, it's... Um, I, I, and maybe the, the, the conversation Arteta has is with Wanieri's uh, parents. You know, maybe you have to, at that age, to chat to a parent or the dependent or whoever, uh, the, the parent or the uncles or whoever it might be, and decide with them, in yeah. liaison with them, if they're yeah. ready for, for now, this. Now, if the, the manager of the football club where your son hasn't got a like full permanent contract comes and says, here, listen, uh, you know, if, if, you know, there's, there's yeah, probably, yeah, there's probably, a bit of it's probably several millions in this for you. If, if um, I yeah. don't again, the dollar signs in the eyes. Can he actually sign a full time contract yet? Probably have to be sixteen, do you? Like, I, I don't I, know what the rules are in the Premier League, but um, right. yeah, it's, it's an interesting talking point. Here's what's coming up. It's uh, seven fifty-five. We've got Lee Keegan standing by. Vinnie Perth's going to join us at eight fifteen. We get his thoughts on on this as well. Uh, he's a football manager, so he's going to like play the kid. Uh, maybe I don't know. Uh, what do you think, Vinnie? You can prepare that one for us. We're also going to talk about the Republic of Ireland. John Duggan's virtual insanity on a hot streak, and uh, we bring in the sports pages. We're also going to speak with uh, Brendan O'Duffick today about his son Ogie. He's written a, a beautiful book. He's put it together almost Ogie, and um, we'll talk to him at around about nine o'clock this morning. And they're going to hear from Colin Begley around about half past nine about, uh, I presume, the Aussie rules. Uh, OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Don't miss our exclusive panel with Leona Maguire and Katrina Matthews live from Dromolan Castle this evening and off the ball. It's all in association with the KPMG Women's Irish Open. Now, delighted to say we've got Lee Keegan with us. Lee, good morning to you. How are you? Good, how are you? Yeah, good. Um, are you going back next year? Have you decided? <laughs> <laughs> Not the, not the question open me with. Nice, nice handy question for you. Well, I, the reason I'm asking it is because um, it seems like it's the, the trendy thing to do at the moment. Is like, yeah, we're definitely coming back. All the dubs are back on board. So surely that's like, here, hang on a second now. Uh, yeah, but they, they've got multiple years of me. That's the only difference. <laughs> so uh, if I get through the club campaign in some shape, I, I could be okay. But I'll have to see how the next we, kind of month goes. We had Joe Canning on the show with, with Owen famously where uh, Owen asked him if he was uh, planning retirement and told Owen absolutely not and uh, minutes later in his ne- very next interview decided that he was going to announce his retirement so please don't do that to us Lee. You, 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 you must have pushed him too hard lads. That, that, was, that, that was the problem but you've asked me nicely so I, I'm not going to give away too much That's here or, ne- or, or next week so don't worry you're safe enough. <laughs> That's why Owen's in Mexico now. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, is, how is your game going at the moment? Are you fitting well? Yeah, doing well actually at the moment. Um, we're in the third round championship now this Saturday with um, Westport. So um, after we're playing Mayo Gales and a big game Saturday, so um, get a win there into a quarterfinal next weekend. So it's coming thick and fast, which is good. But trying to get recovery can be a bit tricky at times. But yeah, moving well, really enjoy it actually. It's um, I think it's nice when you have um, the club season to yourself and you're not worried about going back and forth sometimes between county and are you doing the right thing wrong thing by training or playing matches 
I, I just like when you can give my sole focus towards club boys when they're they are waiting for you most of the year to try, try and get back and integrate with them again. So really enjoying it at the moment, to be honest. And I, I think most boys would probably say the thing, same thing. It's really interesting because it, there's a definite debate happening, and um, you would say there is a, a crew of certainly the diehards or uh, the older crew who are like definitely look, this is a disaster. You know, no one's talking about GA. It's the best time of the year. It's the 25th anniversary of one team. It's the 20th anniversary of another team. Where, like, why aren't we talking about the All Ireland final this week? The weather is great, and you're saying it's actually great. I'm getting to play club football with my mates. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I suppose, like, and I, I, I am somewhat in agreement with people. I mean, it felt weird when the Golden Kerry game ended. It was kind of, it was nearly like an obituary where there was nothing going to happen for a month. But I mean, if I'm talking personally, to be honest, I. I don't mind at all because again I, I don't like to re- refer to the age thing or whatever or getting older but I just think sometimes it's nice when you can just dedicate yourself right I've done the county and it didn't work out really disappointing fine had a couple of weeks to digest it had a bit of reflection time on how the year went and where it went wrong where things went well and so on but then we're into the club season and as I said earlier I don't have to be pulling myself each way that am I doing the right thing or wrong thing am I going to annoy this manager or is this manager going to be not happy with this or so for me I just love having the sole purpose of giving my whole I suppose training regime towards the club guys because I suppose they could say the same argument but themselves so they're waiting around how many months of the year and yeah we're only giving out about a month and a half of football from county so I mean it's it's much and much is really uh so we can't have it always to be honest. Um so yeah I'm really happy that I can just give my time towards the club and, and give that a good rattle. Um we have a great young team at the moment so that that's exciting in itself. Uh, where that brings us glory enough, that's that's for another time. But I mean, for myself personally, um, I just love giving my sole purpose towards the club boys there for the time being. There was obviously the disappointment of that All Ireland quarter final league against Kerry, but like from what you're saying there, it, there's an element of refreshment in that you've had such a long break now that, that that's the other side of the coin of getting knocked out of the championship reasonably early is that you have that time for the club. Time for the club, but also again, I'm going to talk about selfishly. I, I, I time for myself, uh, time for my family, time to meet up with a few friends, go for a few beers, go to weddings, go out, you know, like bits like that. It's very hard to plan during the year. And at least I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that that's why you don't play football or you do play football. Of course, when you play, you love it. And I said it more than often that I, I play football, I love playing football, but it was just nice to. Now, listen, it was disappointing not to be involved, don't get me wrong. I, I loved to have been in an all-learn final day and give them a crack again. But, you know, we had a bit of reflection time. I said, I got to spend time with the kids, the wife, do stuff with my friends, go back to the club. We're totally refreshed, uh, mind switched off. And I just, it's been a breath of fresh air to somewhat, uh, some degree, uh, while also keeping track of what's going on in, in the world of football as well. But um, it's definitely been, it's had its up and downs, absolutely, but, more positive than negative to be honest um, sometimes and I said this kind of numerous times football is not dictating my life anyway um, when I'm in it I give everything towards it and I'll enjoy it but I'm away from it I have total other priorities and things that I want to enjoy in life as well so yeah Lee Keegan the footballer when he's in great but when he's away from it I absolutely love it away from it as well Isn't there a possibility that maybe they could extend the season by f- three or four weeks so that it doesn't feel like it's finished so quickly and that actually you know, county boards will now know exactly what it's like with the split season. But basically, what I'm saying is the split season seems to be largely working, apart from the concerns about the season finishing too early. Move it back three or four weeks. Let's experiment with this over the next couple of years before we go. No, it doesn't work. 
doesn't work throw it out go back I, to I, don't, I don't mind that either I, I, like, I think that's a fair enough um, counter argument like I mean if you're going to add additional two three weeks I don't think that's a big thing for players actually eventing sometimes I know like even with the Kerry game going to the semi-final even for Kerry like to give them an extra week break or sell as the year before like there's no issue with that I mean players don't mind that uh, it's just not dragging the arse of ten for weeks and weeks and weeks so if you're going to put on two or three weeks I can tell you from a player point of view there would be no issue because you're still getting your downtime after that there's still multiple weeks that you can just get away do your fun things do your family thing whatever it is and yet you're still happy so and you can go back into your club campaign whether that's start or not so I mean again I'd have no issue with that I mean I don't think players would like we're only talking a couple of weeks each side of it. and I don't want to come across I'm not going to come across as like oh the spoiled babies I'm just I'm only just speaking personally I know players are the exact same it's just that things that season kind of works as a major degree in terms of you get your break but you go back into another club season or full season so I mean if we're only talking a month it's still a month break so I mean it's, it's much and much just from our point of view that uh, that what you said earlier about priorities changing, uh, you know, and being able to separate life as a footballer from from the rest of life, I guess, and the more important stuff, is that something you, you realised early on in your career? Is it only as you mature as a footballer that you realise that you need to you need to have a, a, another life outside the game, or is that has that only come in the last couple of years, or how have you dealt with it? Oh, he's frozen there, so we we get Lee back. That was your best question of the day. Yeah, well, listen, ruined, ru- absolutely ruined. He's uh, it is a breath of fresh air. Like when you hear, when you hear footballers talking like that, and and understanding that there's a life outside the game. I know most footballers are are of that uh, that mindset well, anyway. I, but I, I, look, I I do think it's um, important to reflect on like giving players downtime. Uh, that if you ask Mannion and you know the, we've we've put out the. The interview that Jack McCarthy did with Bernard Brogan on his podcast for us, where he just talked about it being completely all-consuming mm. and feeling broken yeah. after drawing an All-Ireland final. Like, and oh, I have to go back and do this all again. Like, yeah. we we just assume that um, they go training, they manage their lives, but like the logistics of managing being an intercounty player and having a job are incredibly difficult. So, ask the question again. Yeah, you're back, Lee. Uh, no, the question was just uh, essentially asking. You're talking about priorities changing there over the years. Uh, and, and you know, realizing that there's life beyond football, and separating Lee Keegan, the footballer, from the from the family man, I guess, and everything else, is that something you realized at a certain point in your career? Is it as you mature as a footballer that that you come, you know, more to realize that there's life outside the game? And, and, and like the last couple of years in particular, I, I've learned, I suppose, to just just switch off from football. Um, it's great when Lee Keegan, the footballer, or any kind of player, been a footballer, but like. I just love getting away from the game sometimes and just spending time with my family or just, just down tools completely for football. I like, I've loads of things in life that I love doing. Um, I like, you know, I suppose social events. I like, you know, I like tip away. I like, I love fitness. I'm big into fitness. I love doing a bit of running to myself or bring the kids off for, for a spin or going on a holiday with the family and stuff like that. So I've definitely changed my perspective around priorities in terms of football. As I said earlier, football in my early mid twenties was probably a massive priority. It took a lot of my life. Where now is I I can't be as selfish. I I need to provide and be more I suppose guidance in my in my personal life rather than football. So football for me is a complete outlet. Where before I probably seen it as my sole purpose, um, and that's not necessarily wrong. But I mean I, I just enjoy life probably that bit more now because I'm not solely dedicating my life towards football. Uh, but when I'm in it, I enjoy it. I dedicate myself and I'll push myself to my limit. But when I'm aware for it, football is not relevant really to me at times. So. The other thing is that you can't have your entire uh, identity 
bound up exclusively in your athletic identity otherwise you're not really a good human being at you know or you don't you neglect to become a good human being because we all change and develop particularly in your 20s like the person you are at the start of your 20s and the person you are at the end of your 20s is, is very different um so uh, like maybe this is something that we need to uh, maybe the split season is going to help that where people will be able to like take on stuff outside of the the intercounty bubble which it seems to, to be used to, to be nine months a year yeah, but like that's what I'm saying. Like, I suppose people maybe don't know know that sometimes when we think of ourselves that we love to have football for nine months, and that's great. Don't get me wrong, that's brilliant. Excitement, there's game after game, whatever it is. But you know, I, I as I said, like we are kind of normal people as well. I, I like just doing the normal mundane stuff around home or in town, just grabbing a coffee or just getting away from the whole athletic GA sport thing. So. um I, I do think there is something there to research and look at, possibly. Uh, but again, it's probably it took me to life a bit older to realise, uh, and that could be the same in a lot of cases as well. But you, your your priorities do change as your life moves on. Um, even though I'm not that old, I still think I'm quite fresh in, in terms of I can still move around a bit. Like so, um, but I definitely I definitely look at life a bit differently outside of football. I have one last football question for you. Where do you play for your club? What position are you playing at the moment? Centre back. Right, and do you like that? I, 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 I love it. <laughs> are you unless, a, I'm, unless I'm an 18 year old for another team but. well I was going to say are you a holding centre back or are you like a, a cut and thrust running forward Henry Downey style uh, I would have got a goal against Ballantrover playing Kilo O'Connor's team so it started off as a runner but I, I slowly died away as the game went on so it became like a kind of a quarterback holding role so I was telling the young lads to go if you want so um, uh, but yeah no I enjoy it like, but I, I enjoy any business I don't really mind like you know I, I, like, I suppose we have we have a massive squad in Westwood at the moment, so I, I have that bit more flexibility, being able to probably play higher at the pitch. Uh, we probably um, we've got a few defenders there, so um, I don't get tasked with doing the sole purpose job of marking the danger man as much anymore, um, which is good. So it gives me a bit more freedom and stuff. But um, yeah, no, it's good. I'm enjoying it. I don't know if I could uh, last uh, seventy minutes at a at a twelve thirteen k marathon run, but um, I'm still doing okay. I read in the Mayo News, Lee, this could be wrong, and it sounds wrong that the goal against Ballantubber earlier in the month was your first championship goal for Westport in 13 years, is that right? Correct. I'm a point scorer, not a goal scorer. Right, right. So you don't get to bomb <laughs> as forward maybe with Westport as often as with Mayo, is that is that the way that works? Uh, well, they're giving out to me a good bit for getting in the way though, so I tend <laughs> not to cross halfway too often, but if I do, then I'm told I need to do a bit of damage, but um, you know, no, I'm... I'm we we've like I said we've an exciting group of lads uh, who are they're kind of a breath of fresh air to be around and play football with. I suppose it's that again that young naive kind of young lad that comes in. So uh, I get great enthusiasm for watching these lads. So I've been told enough times get out of the way and let them play by the football. Is there not a couple of years at the end of your career where you could be a half forward just running across the line? Um, I tried that, but I, I just want to get a nosebleed if I don't face goal. <laughs> <laughs> so it hasn't worked out before. Um, so I think actually Horan tried me back in 2013 against Tyrone and Kerry. And that was as bad as long late as I got. How did it uh, go? What, like, why, why did it not survive? Um, I got one point uh, against Tyrone. And I end up probably against Kerry. I end up in more of the half back line because I forgot I was a half forward. Um, I think it's just the the unnatural comfort of not being able to see the, the opposition goal. Uh, too much looking at their own goal. So 
Um, Alan didn't try coaching me one on one for a couple of sessions, but um, I, I lost a bit of interest when he was telling me his political life back then, so uh, it didn't, much, didn't go too well for me. Uh, so I'll, I'll stick to the dependent side of things. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, Oshie McConville is in the uh, in the paper today. I think it from it might be from his podcast talking about the the new setup. He says um, experienced managers I've spoken to all said the importance of keeping it fairly tight. I mean that's not a tight backroom team. He's talking about Mayo here. The next day has it feels a wee bit overloaded. If I'm honest, former county boss Stephen Rochford and high-profile coaches Donny Buckley and Lee McHale are part of McStay's management team. It's so difficult to manage. You're trying to manage players, but you're also trying to trying to manage backroom teams. And a lot of times, a lot of the egos can be in backroom teams as opposed to the players on the pitch. What did you think of that? Um, well, we know Alan Oshie was quite opinionated. So, and I, <laughs> I, I actually like Oshie. I like great time for Oshie. He's one. He's one. He'd be one of my favourite pundits. Um, Listen, I mean, we like I suppose with Oshin judging before even anything's done. Um, I think it's important we like you can throw out opinions and, and comments and that, and that's all fine. But at the end of the day, Kevin and his backroom team were picked because they obviously they had a better fit to them, and that's and that's just personal choice. And um, if it was uh, Ray Dempsey and Oshin, again, no problem whatsoever. So. Um, I, I think it would be very unfair to start criticising Kevin at all in terms of he's done nothing yet in terms of players. He's only got into his role now, looking at club games, trying to get the setup right. So, I mean, judge Kevin on the squad um, next year and how things go. I, I think it's very unfair to say that it's not a tight backroom team. Uh, I know those guys there. Um, they're all great guys. I've worked with them all. Um, so to say that I would be a bit unfair at this early in the season. Um and listen, we can talk about stars sort of backrooms. You still have to have a backroom that's willing to pull in the same way. So um, I, I do fully believe those guys would do a great job. I, I have no doubt about that. Uh, equally, if Oshin was their way, I don't think there would have been an issue. I think they would have done a great job. But it just, again, I suppose everyone has their opinion on these things. Um, you know, you look at Kerry's setup. That's a pretty star sort of setup. And yet they're all in champions. So judge them on, on performance and results rather than um, early doors. I think Kevin McStay has, has set the stall out early, Lee, as well, in terms of relationship with the media. Like, he's probably going to be slightly more open to, to you know, the, the, I guess the approach that James Horan took. Like, how, how do you find, as a player, does, does it make any difference to you how open the management and, and the squad is to the media? Like, it's clearly going to be a, a different kind of tenure under Kevin. Yeah, like, I mean, it probably for you, it's probably really frustrating, uh, particularly the last four or five years where no one's talked about anything. Um, and, like, we're all about promoting our sports and our games, but yet we can't get players and management like, talking about the game, I suppose. So, I mean, what are you going to learn from, from a press night from a player? Uh, not very much, to be honest. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty open and honest over the last years about football and stuff and how, how the game is played. I mean, but what does that tell the team? Not really much. You're still going to get the same person or player that's going to come up against you and you're either going to win your battle or not so I mean yeah Kevin's in the media and he knows how the media works um, I, I don't really have an issue with it to be honest if it helps the game promotes the game but then brilliant if not then you know, but um, I think he's probably going to be a bit more open with it um, for you guys it's probably great and um, you might get a few more player voices out there and that's I no know. harm I think that's it's no harm not. But sure, every sport does it. Every sport does it. It's not, I don't think it should be just a GA thing where we all have to go into a closed book. Like uh, I heard Bernard Brogan say something during the week about, you know, he wants players brought up, but yet even he made himself that they didn't do enough during their time. So I mean, I, I have no problem with that. I mean, the pundits and journalists are there for a reason. They, they need to write backstories about GA, and if they're not writing about it, then who's going to read about it? You know, you're not getting the game out there. So um, I mean, it's, it is an important factor to make sure that. 
as I said, we need to promote our games as best possible again. So you get your players out there talking about yeah, yeah. Like I don't think the Dubs won those All Irelands because they were boring in interviews. No. Like, no. you know, it's no. they're, they're unconnected things, really. Like, so long as you don't slag off your next opponent or any opponent at any point, then you're not giving them. But you, it's it's okay. For, the other thing I think is that it actually it makes it less likely that you're going to get idiotic abuse from people if people know you, right? They they understand that you are, as you say, like there's more to your life than just being a footballer. Um, most cases, most people will see that that's very reasonable. And they'll find it less easy to go, oh, so-and-so, absolutely rubbish. Mm-hmm. Maybe that makes no sense and maybe it doesn't... No, 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 I know what you mean. But I like, <laughs> I like I, if you're like looking at GA or pretty during pandemic, like there was, it was like we no crowds, that was fine. That was that was the guidance. But yet, we don't want to talk about GA. And you're looking around thinking, is there a game on this weekend? There's very little about it. Like even the All-Ireland um, semi-final last year, Dublin Kerry, there was nothing about it, even the two-week build-up to it. And yet we're talking about potential full crowd. No one knew nothing about it. No one knew about teams or how they're feeling or you know how they're feeling the build-up towards it, how the last game went. So, I mean, even as players, we like to read that kind of thing because we're all normal people. Like We still have the same experiences during games and pre-game, post-game, leading into a big game. So, I mean, I don't know what you're going to give away that you've done all year it's, it's not the win and lose in a match it never has been and never will be uh, I just think we got so tight around the whole media GA kind of circle uh, it just it's become a bit of a I don't know a bit of farce to be honest I, I don't I don't see the issue with it like so I mean yeah. unless you guys are going to start writing headlines that about something we never said but that's not the case I mean like we, you know you play a bit of ball on each side as well so I, I don't I, I like to see things a bit more open less stringent going forward if I'm being honest but that's like hey that's that's completely down to each team how they feel about it Has that uh, you know ha, ha, has the issue of abuse online and we know that a lot of players are on social media and read newspapers and all the rest like we're speaking to Declan Boner recently on the show the outgoing Donegal manager and I guess in Donegal they've been keeping the you know the, the current race for the new manager under under fairly tight wraps and they've said it's probably because they don't want candidates receiving abuse online from anyone but has that has that been something that you've noticed in recent years either increasing or decreasing in terms of abuse directed towards players um, probably a bit of an increase certain guys in our team get, get, get quite a, a lot of abuse say via Twitter social or sorry Instagram um, my, I myself I don't see a lot I probably not on it too much to care um, I said I, I'm a boring old dad no one wants to see dad jokes or dad photos of so um, they're, they're not that interested but there has been a bit of a focus on it and I suppose the important thing is as a squad and, and, and as friends and teammates is that you, you make sure you protect them boys as best you can probably especially the younger cohort that come in um, they might be a bit more naive when it comes to social media and not know the kind of I suppose the the avenues that they're exploring when it, when it comes to personal abuse so we, we, we try our best to make sure we protect our guys as best possible but there has been probably a bit more increase probably since pandemic because people have more time with social time or screen time sorry um, so but again it's it's across all sports guys I mean it's not it's not something new um, it's not just a GA thing it's, it's probably across all codes um, but I just think if you have a strong enough group of guys that in there who have I suppose been through it and seen it, uh, and you pass on that, that bit of knowledge to the guys to make sure yeah. they protect themselves. I think that it's it's not a, it's not a huge deal. And now I don't agree with it. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, it's, are you going to stop it? Probably not. Um, but I mean, if you can you can educate guys quick enough around it and, and how they use it and, and how they I suppose put, put content up, then they're not going to be too annoyed. To be honest. How quickly did the news of Manuel McCarthy coming back um, make it to the Mayo team WhatsApp group? 
very little in the Mayo WhatsApp because we're, we're kicking lumps at each other at the moment. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there's that much talking at the moment, guys. That's that's the problem. But uh, it broke fast. It did break fast. I, I think the Desi Farrell took a Jim Gavin leaf there. Really, <laughs> and it just just slipped it in nicely. And like to be honest, I, I think it's great. Again, we're like, having the best players playing our game. You have two of the best players that ever played the game. Uh, so why why wouldn't you be excited for these guys to come back in? Um, I, I played against them enough to know how good they are and what they can bring and the excitement they bring towards games, championships. So, uh, sure, we all know Jack McCarthy is a, he's a, he's a proper character uh, around the GA world and, and, and someone that we all love watching, not because of his absolute outrageous speed, skill, but he seems to like playing football. He has yeah. an enjoyment factor about him. And Paul Mannion has been the best club footballer in Dublin for the last four years, so that speaks for itself. So, it's not like, I mean, it, it, it brings that probably a bit more extra dynamic towards how teams are looking at championship next year. Um, and it'll focus a couple of teams more and more so now um, because you've got to say you've got the two of the best generation players that have come back in Southern this year. Well, look, I really hope you are back next season because it'll be great to see uh, you guys up against them. You, you definitely pull it up to them plenty. So. If I see Jack McCarthy running them in the wing, it'll be probably the sore hamstrings that's <laughs> Well, hopefully they, they don't pop between now and then. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. Cheers. Right, guys. Thanks. Cheers. Right, thank it's, you. It's uh, Lee Keegan. Always great to have him on the show. OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. During the ad break, you're going to hear a clip from the latest episode of Koi Gig. It's the uh, brand new co-host Emma Byrne joining our own Kathy McNamee and Karen Duggan of course as the Chelsea manager Emma Hayes was talked about. Uh, the Koi Gig pod on OTV Sports is in association with Cadbury FC official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. We're back with Vinnie Perth talking Ireland next. OTB AM Right, 22 minutes past 8 this morning. If you want to get in touch with us uh, you can get us on 0879 That's the WhatsApp number or of course you can always uh, leave a comment on the YouTube stream. Plenty of comments coming in about the stuff that we were talking about a little bit earlier on, which uh, I'm going to dig out now for you. And that's this is me filling, by the way. Did you, did you know? Yeah. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, shouldn't the holy thoughts of amateur games and GA is that you should be able to live life and be that good person? So shift you out this drinking uh, uh, ban and missing social occasions in case of being accused of enjoyment. Uh, like the split season is definitely under fire. There's a, a concerted campaign to stop it. <laughs> and I can see that's fine. You know, if it doesn't work, you should throw something out. But have we actually lived with it properly just yet? Yeah. We're not finished the first full season of it. We don't know what the impact is going to be. Like, the club games are going to start getting good, better. Unfortunately, there's too many defensive-minded Gaelic football managers out there. And so the games haven't been as enjoyable because, you know, the quality of the defence, the quality of the forwards is, is not good. Like, you have absolute full-time amateurs playing and the games are televised and so that brings a lot of scrutiny to them so um, listening to Lee Keegan saying there's an opportunity for us to have a life like, yeah. you might get players playing into their mid-30s again as opposed to retiring at 27, 28, 29 yeah we'll get to see some of the best players for longer probably because of the, the split season and, and like that's something I hadn't really considered the fact that these lads can, can go and have the few beers with their mates go on holidays with their friends or their other halves go to weddings uh, and literally enjoy themselves now obviously Mayo were helped by the fact that they went out of the championship slightly earlier but it, it, it's not really that big a difference even Galway and Kerry's f- footballers would have had the chance to, to maybe experience life a little bit more this year and I actually think like none of the people against the split season are proper club people and club fans because I think there has been a bit more of a sparkle around the club season this this year. Like even when I was in, I went down to Galway recently for a, for a cousin's thirtieth and, and was at the cousin's house and um, uncle in law was telling me about a couple of games that were in Pierce Stadium that afternoon. I said, "Jeez, I might call down to that." 
and you just pay it your fiver in or whatever to the to a double header and you get to see Paul Conroy Desi Canelia Rick of the Galway footballers at club level playing for their clubs and enjoying it um, and it's it's so easily accessible and the Dublin Championship is, is obviously going to the next, the next level in terms of uh, competitiveness in Monaghan as well. Like you're getting some cracking games uh, at, at the minute. Uh, county players littered all over the, the pitches, and, and that wouldn't possibly have taken such a centre, a centre fold, and a, and, and a a main a main story attraction if if the intercounty season had maybe been what what it was. So I think from a, from a club perspective, the split season is a good thing, and clearly. We should just list, be listening to the players because my opinion doesn't really matter. Lee Keegan's opinion does, uh, and the fact that he likes it and enjoys it is testament to it, probably. Yeah, and and I think the club players' voice, obviously, um, the CPA disappeared because they got their split season, but uh, there still probably needs to be somebody who's like uh, taking soundings from them, saying, "Did you like the ability that you had this year to uh, have plans and?" go on holiday with your family and attend family weddings and maybe set your own wedding to a date that actually your friends are going to be able to come to. Yeah. Or actually enjoy because you're not, you know, eight weeks from championship, lads, no drinking. Which are the other, uh, like, you know... Uh, well, that's probably Shifty Lads' point is the is the drinking bans, which is a, which is another topic altogether and, and, and something that the GEA probably uh, does need to take a look at. But then it's down to each individual manager. Like, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's our troubled relationship with alcohol uh, yeah. generally as a race might be um, more important there. Uh, to go back to the minimum age thing, or Tony K says, why not have a minimum age of 17 or 18? That way you can look out for player welfare and mental health. It would also spark more interest in underage football divisions. I think the ship has sailed in underage football divisions, really, because of the, the beast that is the Premier League. Um, Mairead Weaver says, read No Hunger in Paradise by Michael Calvin to understand the devastation caused to young players when they're told they're the next big thing and then mercilessly dumped from a club. Isselt on Twitter says, really well said, performance age and maturity to deal with all that comes with the former are often very different. All you need to do is read Calvin's book, No Hunger in Paradise, to understand the dangers to young footballers thrust into the spotlight too soon. So... A couple of separate recommendations for you. I haven't read the book. I've, I heard the interview that he did uh, around the time that it came out. But you just you just know from like every sport, next big thing, phenom, absolutely sensational, pressure, 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 pressure. Something goes wrong, an injury, disaffection, never plays again. You're like, well, that that's a story. Maybe we should learn from this story. No, let's do it again. Next big fifteen year old. Let's go. Like you know, well, what, the- what's going to happen, to Aaron Connolly? I don't know what's going to happen, to Aaron Connolly, but. Was it too much too soon? And we would have been like absolutely guilty of like put him in the team, put him in the team. I was, and it's only it's only at some point when you sit back and go, oh, that was the wrong thing to do with the coffins we put in the team. Yeah, uh, but and yeah, the media certainly has to take some uh, blunt of the the blame as well because how often do you hear the phrase the next Messi or the next Ronaldo thrown about in football terms? Like it's it's just scandalous how often it's used and it's overused. But like these young players, just they don't have the capability of dealing with phrases like that being told that they're the next you know they haven't had the unless they have good experienced younger players around them you know younger players especially this generation are on their phones all the time we know that dressing rooms have changed and, and even Premier League dressing rooms have, have iPhones everywhere whereas back 20-30 years ago that just wasn't the case so now they're, they're, they're being uh, accustomed to reading things and seeing things online and reading pressure and, and probably Googling their own name and Twitter searching their own name, naturally enough. 
so I, I don't know the sports psychology element is is, is massively important and I, I know in, in underage academies that's probably something that's been taken seriously now in, in you know in yeah but that sports psychology is all around performance it's not around like being a good human being and understanding how to deal with there should be a therapist slash counsellor element to it as they well should, yeah and I'm sure they have the money to do that and like there should it just it still strikes me that 15 year olds is like what are you doing yeah, but then the, the texter who, who suggested a, a minimum age, like the, the problem is, where do you like you you wouldn't have had the the Wayne Rooney goal past David Seaman if the minimum age was seventeen or eighteen. Um, that's me talking from a greedy point of view. Obviously, the the welfare of the player comes first, but I just don't know what the minimum what the minimum age is for a player because, as I said before, it is a case by case basis. Some players are ready at sixteen, and some players aren't emotionally ready at 19 so yeah. it's you know. but again right so Wayne Rooney scored that goal would Wayne Rooney have ended up being the greatest goal scoring phenom of all time if like he had had another year of learning to be learning to deal with stuff I don't think so well, you don't know I, you, 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 don't, yeah, like, you we, don't know you don't know either way but like I, yeah I, I just I just think he was thrust into the limelight because of his Unbelievable talent. Yeah. Like, yeah. Obviously, Everton putting him into, putting him into the team and taking him off the bench that day was one aspect to it. But scoring a thirty-yard screen, he was five. Then, he was five days short of his seventeenth birthday. Yeah. Well, yeah. So there you go. He, he was close enough. Like, so he, I don't know. Maybe next week wouldn't have made wouldn't have made any difference. Like yeah. Ethan Ethan Manieri, this Arsenal player, is nowhere near sixteen. I think he's fifteen years and a hundred and something days. So he's he's not even close to sixteen. Yeah. So there's a big there's a big gap there. Even okay. Uh, right, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Remember, don't miss our exclusive panel with Leona Maguire and Katrina Matthews live from Dromoland Castle this evening. It's all in association with the KPMG Women's Irish Open, which obviously starts tomorrow. It's time for the sports pages. There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. <laughs> I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, Emma, come on, don't, don't be, no, I'm not, yes. no. Ray Dempsey would have been a better choice for Mayo, genuinely. I found Ray Dempsey very direct, very honest. I don't think there are enough of those people around anymore. Sorry, because uh, he was obviously part of it, especially in management, and I think he would have been a good fit for them because I think that's exactly what Mayo need. So I don't know who else was part of that backroom. It was definitely Oshin and Aidan O'Rourke maybe was, was another member of it I think I mean, um, they're, they're all very like accomplished none of them are shrinking violets yeah. I don't expect Oshin to be in the change rooms going no, no, no. you're right Ray Eamon O'Hara's name is coming into my head uh, don't quote me on that but uh, yeah it, to, to memory it was a very decent backroom team also um, like <laughs> Oshin's intro, like it, it was a sliding doors moment for him because if he, if he had if Ray Dempsey had got the job and Oshin was part of the backroom team he wouldn't now be the Wicklow senior football manager um, so it's it, like it's interesting to see what he does there, but uh, very very open and honest from Oshin. He's never shied back as as no, That's why I love him. He's great. Yeah, yeah. And I think Rian O'Neill was the guest on on the podcast itself. And Declan O'Keefe, uh, former Kerry goalkeeper, Enda Gavari, Keith Higgins, and James Burke. Sorry, right. I was thinking of a different backroom team myself. Yeah, like <laughs> not as quite as star studded as as Kevin well, stays. But well, no. But Oshin would have been also involved. And then there was a suggestion that Kevin O'Neill. And Terry Kennedy might be involved, as could Daniel Kilgallen, who, of course, is the sprint coach mm. for Ireland's fastest ever sprinters. Yeah. You know, um, uh, but like uh, Kevin O'Neill, really interesting character. You know, uh, look, I'm not saying I'm not saying that O'Shea's wrong. 
I just think that Oshin's wrong. I don't think egos in a in a backroom team is is really an issue. They know what they're getting into by signing up for that. Like Stephen Rochford was in the backroom team at Donegal. He's stepping into a very similar role now with Mayo. Um, like they all have their own individual roles. Like Liam McHale is liaison, I think, to the under twenties. Uh, they've got other people in there liaison to the to the club teams as well. So I mean, they've obviously thought this through and. Look, Oshin's Oshin obviously would have preferred for Ed Dempsey to get the job, but um, or maybe not. Maybe there's a sliding doors moment, and he yeah. actually takes to intercounty county management like a duck to water and decides, you know, and and then he's in yeah. the the um, his hats in the ring whenever Geezer goes. Well, by all accounts, he's been he's currently managing in a skein at club level in in Monaghan, and they'd be a small enough parish. Like they'd be, uh, you know, they obviously have the the stadium where different Monaghan club. Uh, League games are held. Patrick Cavan, the country. I was going to say, there's a dance at Billy yeah, Brown's barn. Of course. But they're a small enough club, but they're into the senior championship semi final now for, for an, an, yet another year. So he's taken them to, to a different level. So he's a good manager, Rushing. Uh, revealed how, how Taekwondo bribed way into the Olympics. This is a Matt Lawton exclusive this morning on the London Times. Whistleblower says cars and cash were used to get martial art into the Sydney Games. The election was rigged with 500 grand in payments. Olympic boxing medals traded for bribes. Um, so Taekwondo wasn't in the Olympics and then was in the Olympics and then, then uh, you know how, how does something like that happen? How do you get your sport into the Olympics? Uh, money, money fixes everything. And it turns out money buys medals as you, well. Yeah, I haven't read this piece yet. I didn't get a chance to this morning. You had a look at it. Yeah, I think like one of the figures I'd read. I think was it Azerbaijan paid maybe ten million for a, for an Olympic medal in boxing at one point. This guy essentially um, the name is on the piece there. Oh Kim, like he's essentially been diagnosed with cancer and has decided uh, I, I might die and I need to get these things off my chest which he is doing um, largely and, and I sat down with Matt Lawton for a, for a fairly in-depth piece um, and has just let fly at everything he says he was a delivery guy for some of these bribes um, he's holding his hands up it's it's almost a mea culpa from his behalf uh, but really throwing a lot of people and countries and organisations under the bus um, so yeah it's really really fascinating stuff probably no surprise to many of us that there's a little bit of corruption in certain levels um, but but to see the figures involved and to see the actual fact that there are there have been medals at world championship and Olympic level literally purchased um, is quite a it's quite a terrifying thought and really puts a puts a dark stain on, on the Olympic Games. Uh, Kenny's a name dropper is tab of the morning to you Scotland versus Ireland Stephen not afraid to act star players for Scotland Stephen Kenny has insisted he's no qualms about dropping anyone as Seamus Coleman and Shane Duffy sweat on their places so Duffy was in Nathan's team mm. Coleman wasn't I think he's going to pick Coleman you think he's going to pick Coleman I do think he's going to pick Coleman um, I'm feeling Coleman's going to be left out Vinnie Perth's on his way in and um, we'll see I, you, do you have any information? no I, I just I just like I feel like Doherty and McLean are guaranteed as the wing backs and then you've got Nathan Collins and John Egan guaranteed so Collins can quite easily go to the right of that three Egan can quite easily go to the left of that three and Shane Duffy probably fits the bill in the middle I'd probably put Darrow Shea in there myself but uh, I feel like he's going to pick pick Shane Duffy I just have a feeling that, that Coleman Coleman's lack of game time and look, the argument's going to start where does game time come in versus um, what you've done in recent international windows but uh, yeah I have a feeling Coleman might not play um, OK Scott's love affair with the game stands test of time is the James McDermott piece picture there of Stephen Kenny Kenny facing the old dilemma of form versus reputation um, you know Scotland's reputation in world football as they say there, three of soccer's greatest managers, Steen, Busby and Shankly, were born within 30 miles of each other. Um, yeah, they've, they've done all right, those boys. Uh-huh. Uh, we've Scott some hope. 
is the headline on Paul Lennon's piece in The Star. Stephen Kenny helps Ukraine can beat Scotland tonight to boost Ireland's hopes of a Nations League group runners-up spot and their Euro 2024 ambitions. Ten Hag is out of the Klopp drawer. This is Bruno Fernandes' piece that he's done uh, where he's like very impressed so far by Ten Hag and we already talked about Nathan Dyer. Split season and own goal, says Pat Spillane. He's down at the ploughing and he's given an interview saying, uh, giving the opposition a chance, the opposition being other sports. I'm completely against the split season. We've taken our two best products, Intercounty Hurling and Football, and taken them off the shop window for nine months. <laughs> Is it nine months? Like February, March, April, May, June, July. That doesn't. That seems more than it three. Does. It does. Uh, when you take your best product out of the shop window for nine months, you give the opposition a chance. Maybe we're not going to go as far as the third Sunday in September to play in the final, but at least take back the month of August. I think. I think there's like a, a happy medium here where they take back a little bit uh, longer as well. There's a story here about Qatar failing to reform World Cup stadium workers still toil in debt and squalor. The Qatar World Cup is going to be one of those things you look back on in 30 years and go, what, 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 what was that allowed to happen? And it's the same story as like Taekwondo in 2000 in Sydney. Yeah. Money, money made it happen and it's pretty grotesque. And, uh, and at the same time, the papers are like, oh, Leo Messi might win a World Cup finally. And I mean, Pete Patterson, Pete Patterson for The Guardian writing there, he's been in Qatar for nine years and he says the, the scenes he saw at, the, at those camps are the worst he's seen. Right. Like these, these guys are getting, getting worse. Yeah, pound, a pound per hour. They're sending home 160 quid a month, I think, to their family. So, and then there's obviously the, the illegal agent fees to secure these jobs in the first place. So there's a lot of... Uh, it's basically human trafficking. Terrible things happen, yeah. Uh, no one is safe. Kenny warns I'm the manager and will drop anyone that I have to from the team. Uh, right, John Duggan is with us. John, good morning to you. Jaron, Shane, how are we doing? How are you getting on? Not too bad, thanks yourselves. Um, I'm seeing, I was like, there's two footballers in the front of the paper at the, at the ploughing and it's uh, it's Ray Houghton and some young fella. It's like, who is it? Is it? It's one of those lads from, maybe from West Ham, that, that team that had, they had, a, no, it's Toto Scalacci. Mm. Right. He looks amazing. Toto Scalacci looks like a, like a young fella. Doesn't, doesn't really look like Toto Scalacci anymore. Jeez, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen him since the Smithwick's ad. <laughs> which he did a few years ago. Hold yeah. me up there. I don't know if we can see Toto's little face in there. Probably not. Um, he, does look, he does look remarkably young. It's funny because he just caught lightning in a bottle in that tournament. Yeah, he's, uh, uh, his name gives us... Like he was never years. really the same before or after in terms of reaching the heights of football. Um, <laughs> uh, it was, and obviously what went also wrong in Naples with Maradona. Um. What, sorry, I missed that bit. Go again. I just said Toto Scalacci never really hit the heights as a player before or after that World no. Cup. No, like a six-week period where he was like the most devastating striker yeah. in the world, and then and now he's doing the ploughing. He, well, he's down in Kildare. Well, that's it. You know, there's always hope. I mean, look, the ploughing is amazing. If you haven't had the chance to go to the ploughing, we used to get a day off school for it, not officially to go to the ploughing. It was sensational, mm-hmm. and I look forward to. Um, to this show coming to you hopefully live from the planning next year is it like a farmer's Oktoberfest or something uh, I'd say yeah I mean it's an electric picnic for farmers it's right. Rathaniska it's literally right beside electric picnic yeah. as well isn't it yeah. same, uh, same locale um, it's the Gar- someone I saw someone on Twitter pointing out it's the Gareth Brooks for Colch- for Colchies except it's also for Colchies Colchies are taken out yeah the last couple of weeks you've got Gareth Brooks and uh, notice how I said you not me- we um, oh, that's proper proper of course because I'm a because I'm a townie from back home in Monaghan I, I wouldn't be classed as a culture necessarily although the dubs would have me in a different no, you're, you're a pure Garth Brooks country 
uh, like, I, it was Jer actually the only man in this room John that's been to uh, Garth Brooks is, is, uh, oh, okay. did you not go John no no it's uh, completely over my head lads <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me the Garth Brooks any thing. country music John nah it's at all no. none no I wouldn't mind going to Nashville just to see it but Willie Nelson the Highwaymen nah it's all over my head lads um, yeah. I'm from the pale you know I'm that doesn't I'm, mean you're. I'm more geared, geared towards Depeche Mode or something like that, so or, or something else. Um, no, Daniel O'Donnell. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, each their own. Respect it all. You know, everybody's entitled to their um, culture, but uh, it's not mine. <laughs> I can. I'd say John to pull off a pair of brown shoes and. I pull off shoes, all right. Um, it's more um, white spats uh, that I used to wear when I used to go out, but. Um, not no, no country now. And have you retired the spats? Uh, I, yeah, they, they just kind of wore. Yeah, they have retired. They have been retired. Um, but I need to need to go back and do a bit of that. I've always wanted kind of white. I've always wanted white crocodile skin shoes, um, or, or snake skin. <laughs> so I need to kind of get back into that vogue. There's a. There's I, a used, I used to buy. I used to go. I used to be the Amanda Marcos of my of my uh, my era about twenty years ago. I used to buy all these kind of um, expensive shoes. <laughs> uh, I got a gold credit card when I was about 20 or something and it all went to my head. It'd be worth a fortune now. Well, uh, to, to, the theme of the morning is like, too much too soon. Well, that's it. Uh, too much too young, as the special said. There's a country music festival held in Monaghan every July. I think we should, I'm going to make the call out right now, we should do a OB, forget about the ploughing, we should do an OB from the, the country music festival. We can do both. Great fun, a lot of fun. I think we'd have a, we'd have a great time. You'd be frying steak, Shane. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I'll put you up in the gaff as well in Monaghan. <laughs> it's hard and emotional every day, but it'll be good shows. Yeah, yeah. Monaghan's finest brew, like in the moonshine and everything. It's uh, it's 8.41. Yeah. Uh, that is this... Unless you want to do the papers, we're going to move on to Virtual Sunday. That's the papers. There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, Emma. Come on, don't, don't be... No, I'm not. Yes. No. It's time now for Virtual Insanity. You have entered Power Drive. Oh, wow! Right. Right. The French Open. Uh, Au de France, uh, Le Golf National. It starts at 6.50 tomorrow morning because the President's Cup is going on across the pond in the Atlantic. Um, so therefore, we're going to concentrate on the DP World Tour event this week. Uh, this is what the Ryder Cup course, wasn't it? 2018, Mollywood. You might remember Mollywood, Tommy Fleetwood and Francesco Molinari taking the Americans to the cleaners. Um, so it's a tight course. It's an accurate, uh, you know, favours accurate players. This, this course, a lot of water hazards, a lot of deep rough. So you want to be, uh, you know, going with strategy players. Um, I pick five. These are on otbsports.com on the OTB app. Profit is 333 euro for the year, 33.3% profit. Uh, so, right. Rasmus Hoigo from Denmark is the headline tip at 28 to 1 for four each way. Now, this is about strategy, and there are other strategy players in my thing, but the class acts are you also what you've got to look at as well, because this field is not that strong, and Rasmus Hoigo is a real talent. He's only 21 years of age. He's already won three times on the European Tour. He was shot a 66 in Rome uh, at the weekend in the final round. He was in the top 20 at Wentworth. He does bomb it. He's going to have to temper that, but he does hit a lot of greens, and he's so talented, Rasmus Hoigo. I'm just going to go for the class act as my headline tip this week for the Denmark's uh, Rasmus Hoigo for 28 to 1. Uh, Victor Perez is the home favourite of all the French players who are, you know who could win this. I think he's the one at 18 to 1 for three each way. Once again, four rounds uh, under par last week initially, was third, uh, won the Dutch Open earlier this year. 
uh, was a really like promising player about three or four years ago, uh, but kind of lost his form. But Victor Perez is a fairways and greens guy, and he's back in form now, and he's a very solid, I think, each way proposition. The third one is a guy I've been kind of looking at because he plays well on tough courses, which this is. Uh, Holland's uh, Ville Besseling. So he's 100-1 to 1 for three each way. Played really well the first two rounds of the uh, US Open, was second at the European Open on a tough course in Hamburg earlier this year. Has never won, has never turned up at the Golf National, but I just do think he is a good guy off the tee, and I think that's what you need this week. Ville Besseling might surprise at 100-1. to 1. The fourth one is Saren Kjelsen, former Irish Open winner at 125-1 to 1 for two each way. Shot 64 in the second round at Wentworth, was tied fifth there, so he's playing well. Um, I was going through back to 1998. He's got 10 top 20 finishes in this tournament at this course and three of those inside the top 10. So he likes the course. He's a strategy guy. He's 47 now. He's playing well. He could be a guy that could be a, one of the better outsiders, Saren Kelson. And the last one, a bit of a sentimental one, at 100-1 to 1 for one Euro 50 each way, Mike Lorenzo Vera. The guy has been taking it to live golf all year, being called on the mouse at his home course where he's been tied third and tied sixth in the past. His form has really dipped since the pandemic kind of disrupted everything. But if he can find some magic on his home turf with his fans around him, Mike Lorenzo Vera could surprise. So Mike Lorenzo Vera, Ciaran Kjelsen, Ville Besseling, these are the guys around the 100 mark. Then we have second Victor Perez, a solid guy who's in form, and the headline tip guys. Rasmus Hoigo from Denmark at 28-1 to 1 in the French Open. Starts tomorrow over Sunday. Very good. That's this week's episode of Virtual Insanity. You have entered Power Drive. Two uh, comments side by side. Sean Ryder says the only people to live up to the underage hype, LeBron, Joe Canning and David Clifford. Mm-hmm. Not the only people. Uh, Shane Hannon has also lived up to the underage hype. Tennis Tank says keep Shane on every morning. Well, we are going to do that. Out of respect for the Queen, we had to wait until everything was over, but we couldn't wait any longer. Shane, congratulations. Welcome aboard. Thank you very much. Thank you. Glad to be on board. Glad to be on board. No pressure. Modern's finest, no Shane Hammer. No <laughs> the king is dead. The the king is dead. Long live the king. Yeah, I was going to wear a black suit for the occasion, but um, forgot this morning what t-shirt it is. Uh, your job now is to get behind your new manager. We should get. We should get probably get Owen to, to record that line. Um, given that he's the he did say he did say it on the way out just before he he broke into tears, but we didn't get that on camera because we were we were being kind to him. He did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone in Man will be happy. We, we we need we needed more Manhattan accents. I think. Far in the army. Far in the army. <laughs> so yeah, delighted. Delighted. Um, a, a new dawn and a new era I hope to be um, of um, Monaghan and Green Diesel anecdotes galore just don't tell the spa story ever again please no no never again there'll be the odd possibly GMAC impression you'd we, imagine was he, was, he at a green, was he at a Grand Prix was he I never heard about it oh. <laughs> they'll bring us up it's, it's driving me to call beers to be honest yeah 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 absolutely um, so but like I didn't think that we would have a person in place before Monaghan would have a manager in place given Monaghan I uh, got rid of Banty a long, long time ago, it feels. But, this uh, is the kick up the hole they need, Shane. Yeah, 100%. So, we've uh, we've uh, got our finger out before them. So Oh, to be active first. It's uh, 8.47 this morning. If you want to get in touch with us, 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Of course, you can leave a comment for us in the YouTube stream. And we're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today. Finney Part's going to join us next. First, here's Chidoze Egbene talking ahead of the Scotland game. Well, I'm hoping for six points, most importantly. I think um, we just need to, you know... Um, I, I'm, you know, I think we want to rectify the Amina result because it was a frustrating away day. Um, you know, and just you know, 
display what we displayed near Viva against Scotland and hopefully um, you know we get the six points and you know leave the rest of the footballing out. Um, well, firstly, I, I am happy to bear, but when you come to international level, no one's guaranteed positions. You have to fight, you know, every day of your life to get a position in, the, in this team. And, you know, you see players come and go, and I'm quite fortunate I've been called um, the times I've been called. And that's why you come here, and I, I enjoy the, the occasion. Um, you know, I see the kind of players we have here, and I'm trying to learn off them to take it back to my, to my club. But when I come here, you know, I try to work twice as hard to, to, to get a jersey to even be in the squad first of all so I know what it takes and that's why you know continue but I'm quite blessed you know the coaches you know they continue to feed information in me and uh, to me to, to help me improve my game so that's what I'm going to do um, you know I've stayed, I've stayed relaxed really I try not to get too high when things are going well and try not to get too um, too low when things are going badly um, so these things are going to happen but I think the, the people I have around me is quite good I think um, not starting against Scotland you know the boys got the result, and that's the main important. That, you know, that's the most important thing. And to watch it from the, the sidelines, and you know, to watch the clips and see what, you know, like players like Michael were doing different than I would have done different. So to see, if we can learn from each other, and uh, we're all here to, you know, to achieve one goal, to win games. So it doesn't really matter who's on the pitch. Obviously, you push to be on the pitch, but once again, the result is always good for everybody. Yeah, Chidozek like Benny making a lot of sense in the press conference yesterday. Vinnie Perth is with us. Vinnie, good morning to you. Morning. How are you all doing? This is um, it's an important window because the last window started disastrously, improved slightly, and then finished rapturously. So, you know. Yeah, no, I, th- I think at, at this stage, every window is important. And we, we, we're going through this cycle of after bad performances, a lot of noise around the team and good performances, a lot of praise so we're still in that cycle I, I feel and it is a difficult window in many ways because the Scotland game will be a tough game um, absolutely tough game so um, yeah it's, it's, it's I suppose that's that's the gig isn't it they have to live with it. It is the gig and um, it looks like we're getting towards a settled team or at least it did look like we were getting towards a settled team because the team that beat Scotland 3-0 at home played really well but there's probably going to be some changes. Yeah, and, and I think this is like it's something I've heard discussed at different stages. I think it's so important that, um, and I of, often reference it here that we don't really see, or the average fan doesn't really see championship football that much, mm. and so much of our team is based out championship football. So form is huge coming into windows, um, and I think Stephen has to pick the team on form, but he also has to be loyal at certain occasions and there's just no hard I, I imagine there's no r- rules on you know in terms of how you pick a player because you have to be loyal to some people and you have to understand the makeup of your team uh, but at the same time you can't ignore people's form and uh, you look at Chidozi's form recently we would have said maybe he wouldn't be in the starting team but you have to say on form he deserves to be in the team so yeah. that's sort of where we're at as a, as a nation he's been great coming off the bench for Ireland and then when he started games he hasn't been quite as effective yeah. and like look that's you know that's fairly natural when you're very early in your international career that yeah. it, it's a different scenario so does does Kenny in some ways think actually I'm going to leave him in reserve or does he go actually you're in form I want you to score early here yeah well, I, I, and I think the key to it is so, some people who I suppose the, the, the pro Kenny gangs would have been saying we've done a huge amount of hay, he, heavy lifting of building a squad so the key is uh, we have options now I would say and I think you could have there's probably four or five arguments around the team who will play who won't play which is a good position to be in 
we're probably missing, I would say, a Garrett Bale, a, a, a Robbie Keane, a, a star that takes us to major championships. But at the same time, we've built a team. There's a lot of players playing at a really good level. Um, you know, we, we all talk about Premiership, 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 but if Championship's at decent level, you look at someone like Dara O'Shea playing regularly for West Brom. I, I've often people would say, "Oh, dude, these lads need a move. They've just been relegated." Sometimes, particularly when you're young, to be playing week in, week out at a really high level will help. I think we've got a lot of players in that window. Albeit, when you look at Scotland, I think they've got maybe ten players that are in the Premiership as well. So and we are as well. and playing. So yeah. we are a little behind, and we like players playing at a high level. But I think the transition is, is starting to happen. I feel we're, we're on the cusp of something. Okay. Right. It was really interesting reading. Um, was it Damien Delaney in the Sunday World? I think at, at the weekend, where he's kind of talking about he, he, he was, he's surprised at how much backing Stephen Kenny has got, and he was kind of pointing towards the qualifiers next March as maybe a period where, if those games are lost, then another referendum has to be on Kenny. Like, is it is it just an Irish thing now that after every single game or a window, we seem to have this referendum on Kenny, even though he signed the contract? Yeah, I, I think it's sport in general nowadays. I think people used to sit around the, the the table and work and have a chat about the match the night before. Now it's on social media. Now it's out there. It's in the world we live in. I think that's just the world we live in now. Uh, but at the same time, it is probably the biggest gig in Irish sport. Um, it's the most participated sport. So therefore, what comes with that is huge pressure. So... Um, I mean, the answer to Damien's probably right. If we lose two or three games, there will be huge discussions because I think, whatever about World Cup, I think we've got to be close to qualifying for European Championships or at least at least missing out by a bit, bit of bad luck at the end of the day. So I think, um, and, and I think the Nation League will help us get to that in terms of the playoffs maybe. So um, it's, 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 you would feel that... It's, it's almost harder not to qualify for European Championships nowadays it, it, in, in terms of the set up so many different ways and so many teams qualify so there is pressure with that job and I think Stephen accepts that to be fair Let's look at the team that you've, you've picked um, is this the team you think he will pick or is this the team that you would pick? No I di- uh, it's so difficult because I mean you could pick three or four teams I, I'm just looking at form and trying to send, learn from what went in the previous games and I'm trying to get inside of Stephen's head a little bit and saying so therefore I'm, I'm putting myself out there this could change and, and I, I didn't know him as well as I think I do but this is this is something I feel Before I end the team to. sorry here's my question right you, you've talked about the championship and obviously Kenny's looking at the highlights and, and the wise scout of every every minute of every yeah. performance of, and his his team are doing that how important is the actual training sessions in the week of the game in terms of selection, so, so so two points. One one is on championship and form, and like he goes to a lot of games. So just just to not to go off, not to not answer your question. About a month ago, I went to the UK for a couple of days. I was actually in Fleetwood and watching them train, how things done, club visit, and I ended up going down to watch Birmingham against Huddersfield. And for the average Irish fan, which I would be or we'd all be, Scott Hogan hasn't done that much. For Ireland, he hasn't. He hasn't looked sharp, and when he's got his chance, hasn't really taken it. But I remember watching him going, "Wow, this this guy's a good player." And I actually un- we undervalue him because I've been to see him live. I've watched his movements, and since then, um, I've watched a couple more the, of of the Birmingham games. He got a hat trick recently. He's in really good form. But but for 
an Irish fan turning up if Scott Hogan happens to get onto the team sheet we're going to be going wow where's this come from Yeah. but the manager his staff Keith they, they, they'll have been to Scott Hogan's like the night I was there Keith was actually watching the game as well he right. was in the stadium so the point I'm making is we, we, we have to be careful how we view teams and pick teams and we've got to understand that these are doing their job week in week If you miss a chance for Ireland in the last four or five games we remember that yes. whereas actually what they've seen is like the development and evolution and fitness and the, the so, markers and, and all that stuff And again and, it's, uh, and, and stop me if I'm going overboard but Birmingham play a similar way to Ireland okay so therefore Scott Hogan is playing in a, in a sort of similar system right. as uh, and Ireland and uh, his, mo- his movement across the front post is probably better than most strikers we have in okay. terms of his movement so it's just a, it's just a point to say so if, if Scott Hogan is under new management he's really fit at the moment if he comes in and trains this week and trains brilliantly you've got Keith watching him live you've got Stephen watching him live Stephen Rice is probably watching him live well then there is an opportunity for someone like Scott hoping to jump the queue and say I've got to play someone in form I'm not saying that's going to happen but that's the that's how these things all play out for an Irish side yeah because I, like, I wouldn't say we were surprised that he was in the squad but like you know listen to you now it makes more sense that and it will make more sense if he gets some game time some meaningful game time which he probably will over the two games yeah I think I think there's a possibility look we've got strong options there whether it's uh, Albania or um Obafemi. Obafemi, like between the two of them. You've also got Callum Robinson, Troy Parrott. Again, I heard someone say he's not playing that well. Someone who knows the game of football is not that playing well. He hasn't scored goals. He's been exceptional for Preston. Has he? Yes, he really has. Okay, because um, we um, haven't heard this. Like, yeah, really, no. none of us are watching Preston week in, week out. Or, or no, of course, or we're not. And <clears throat> again, I've seen Preston live, and I was really impressed with him. And is, um, I think. He, he, but he ha- Preston aren't scoring goals I think we all know that And but he's been really really good and a couple of goals would have transformed people's opinion of him but from a form point of view I think he's really good at the moment and, and playing really well so ok Okay, let's name your team then. So, Bazunas and Golds. Again, I'm trying to get into Stephen's head a little bit, but uh, Darrow Shea, Egan and Collins as a back three. Again, that that could change, but I just think on form, I think it would have been really interesting if Omar Bamadeli had been fit because, again, himself, he's in excellent form for Norwich. He, that would have, that would have uh, given Stephen a real sort of decision to make. Uh, but... Uh, again, it could it could easily be a Shane Duffy, and again you could split hairs whether Egan plays and Collins because you've got to get the balance right. Collins plays that central role really well of a back three, but uh, that's what I that's my gut feeling. He'll go with again. It could be Seamus Coleman in the back three or Shane Duffy. So we've Instead got three of options. Probably O'Shea. I think Nathan Collins and Egan are certs. Okay, it's who comes in, who comes in, and I think. And does the balance of the back three get affected? Like. Well, to be fair, like uh, Duffy can't really play the right of a tree. He has played there. Duffy would have to be the centre one. Probably the problem when Shane plays there is the quality of passing isn't as good as other players. So if you're going to play three, you'd like to play out from the back. Um, but Nathan Collins or Egan can play um, on, on the sort of left of the tree, no problem. And, and Seamus Coleman on the, on the right of it. If Seamus plays there, it's almost like, and I keep using the Chelsea thing, it's almost like if you see Astelacqueta breaking out of that Chelsea back tree. Yeah. I think Seamus can do that to a point. Yeah, a and point. so where does Nathan Collins play in the three? If it's, if it's Collins, Egan and O'Shea, who's left, centre and right? Yeah, it's, 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 I, I know Egan can play in the right and that's, that's the decision, that's about the balance and that's where this one confused me a little bit. I spent a bit of time on the back tree, not 100% sure because 
you prefer Nathan Collins in the centre but I think that's where he's got his real quality but Egan is probably more likely to be the centre one I'd say but you're splitting hairs okay. there in terms of who plays and O'Shea's which, on the left O'Shea, Darrell O'Shea be more I would say operate off the left of it Is James McLean now first choice left wing back? Um, it looks like it I mean um, I think the other option there is Robbie Brady I know we do have Matt Doherty could play there uh, but I think James McLean particularly away from home it's J- James is fascinating isn't he like people give out about him then he comes in and does brilliantly yeah. and he's like well, we need James McLean we need him so it's it's difficult. Ninety six caps. Yeah, no, it's an incredible uh, career. And, and by all accounts, a great person around the the change rooms, the squad. And look, I don't think you need to you, you need to question anything about James and his desire. It's sometimes there is a lack of quality at times, and his crosses sometimes let him down. But I think away from home, this will be a difficult tie. So again, you could see. I mean, I mean. We had the debate not that long ago about whether Doherty play left wing back could be and James Coleman right wing back. The one that misses out on this and I think is really unlucky is Alan Brown in those last two games was excellent. And I'm a real Alan Brown fan. Again, plays week in, week out with Preston. And Alan Brown is a goal threat. We haven't have goals in our team. Yeah. So I'm re- it's really harsh on Alan Brown. I was thinking in Coleman team. in the team because I just think like I, I think he will pick Coleman because of the experience and and but I don't know but like Doherty played really well at left wing back so there is there is room for Doherty to take McLean's place and Alan Brown to be yes. rewarded for his form for Ireland yeah and I wouldn't be surprised if that happens but it's it's sometimes you're looking for that balance of left and right footers and yeah. um, O'Shea will play in, if, if O'Shea starts for argument's sake it's great sometimes on, if a right footer plays in the left because opens the whole pitch up for, for a team <laughs> So you can't have all... You, you, you're looking for a bit of balance. And again, trying to get in his head, is again, it could be wrong. Does any weight have to be put on the, the previous Scotland game? Like, looking at the team that day, obviously you had Brown and, and McLean as the, as the wing-backs. You had Collins, Duffy, Egan that day as the three. Like, kept a clean sheet, played well. Should, should any weight... I know the game was back in June, but should you put any weight on the, on the, on the fact that we, they, they, they played well against Well, well I suppose, like, the, the obvious answer is yes. So why change the team? Should the team we played won 3 nil? But again, it goes back to form. It goes back to who's in, who, who's in really good form. If you look at our midfield tree, like of Malumbi came into the team, gave us huge energy that day. Mm. Jason Knight obviously gave us a real running power, and I think, I think we need that in that midfield. I think we've seen a slight tactical change where we sort of went to that um, midfield tree. I'm going to call it, but um, we probably needed that in the first two games. We weren't that good in that last window. Um, and we got something out of the Scotland game again uh, I, I think you have to you have to and that's why I wouldn't be surprised if if you went with the same front two as that day but I, again I'm saying Chidozzi's form is that good mm. I presume he's going to pick him I just yeah. presume he's going to pick him um, and yet if it's uh, if it's Parrott and Hogan if it's uh, Parrot and Obafemi, like Obafemi would be a bit of a wild card given his club situation. But yeah, he hasn't played a lot of football in the last month. It's it's been two minutes, or and then beyond that, it's been about four or five weeks. So it's almost like when when to- uh, calls are so tight as a manager, sometimes 
if you have an excuse, it's great. Yeah. You know, it's it's almost like yeah. it's not that you're going to admit to it. You're not really playing at the moment, so that sometimes can tip it one way or the other. And I think we're we're at real judgment calls here in terms of the team. It's not like we're we're you know we're debating whether you know a star should play ahead of uh, up and coming. I think a lot of our players are sort of so evenly matched. It's about finding the balance and who's on form. And I, and I've said about ten times now, but form at the moment coming into this window, I think overrides. Yeah. some of the performance against Scotland whatever about people not seeing much of the championship uh, not that many people seeing that much of League One mm. and uh, Knight we hoped would get a move um, I don't know what his contractual situation is but I think he's up at the end of the end year of this year yeah yeah and so like look whatever you do whoever his advisors are don't sign anything yet no. just let's wait and see exactly how well the rest of the season goes and then you'll have hopefully your choice is he doing well at the moment? Played, he actually played second striker according to transfer market in the last game, but he'd been right back or he's, right wing back. He's been right back, or may, may, they've, they've, they've started as a wing back and then he ended up in a back four. Right. Um, he's done. He's done quite well in that position. I don't think it's, and that's where there's no hard and fast and rules. I think Robbie Brady is is going to be considered as probably left back option or left wing back option, right? Um, and not a midfielder. Because of he's playing there week in week out at the moment, Robbie Brady is. But I think with Jason Knight, I think we need his. If you remember that position that say Jamie McGrath played away in Portugal, I think we need that running power from Jason Knight. Therefore, I think he play in midfield. Has he done well? He's done. He's done quite well. Um, again, we look at these young players with Irish eyes. He was he was available for the whole championship to sign one year left in his contract could have got him out Derby imagine for small money so people in the, in English football are probably still watching him at the moment saying what is he where is he and where is he at so I think the next sort of obviously there's no doubt about it, the next couple of months are crucial from I think the international football will help him in terms of getting his next club or wherever that may be but I, uh, he's done okay he's played quite well he's playing is the main he's thing playing well. and yeah. again I like you could sign for a club at Middlesbrough for argument's sake and, and be off the bench and be off the bench and I think at, at that young age we we need to do this as well we need to be patient with these guys and say um, we're, we've someone like I go back to Dara O'Shea he's going to head I don't know the figures but he's going to head into you know maybe 24, 25 a couple of hundred league appearances under his belt there's guys coming out under 23 squads in City, Liverpool, Manchester uh, all played. haven't played yeah. and I think that's crucial for us so we need to be patient with the, with this group well let, let's talk about the patience because Malumbi I think um, is somebody who uh, came in the team played okay played badly for a while lost his place at the club got a move playing football playing great full of confidence like that's been the kind of it hasn't been a straight line for him at all yeah but who would have taught young players would have ups and downs like and, and we, we've jumped on all these young players from the 21s and we had to be patient and again just just to point a note and I've put Malumbi in but I wouldn't be shocked if Jeff Hendrick starts you know I wouldn't be Stephen generally picks him when he's fit um, and he's back playing now to a point well that's the thing he dropped him for the Scotland game after the for the third and the, the three window the last time Malumbi came in he did come off the bench but he wasn't playing any football at that stage and now he's playing week in week out yeah I, I, I'd like to think that um, and Jeff's been a brilliant servant for Irish football really has but I'd like to think that Malumbi's now ready to overtake that sort of position and, and make that his own Cullen Malumbi and whatever the configurations ahead of that will be at different stages so I think we, we could do with that sort of 
whatever I don't like using numbers whether it's a 6 and an 8 or two sixes I think Willumby and, and, and Cullen are really potentially really good combination and I think it's probably time for Stephen well, it's a big decision for him because he's been loyal to Jeff and I think Jeff's a senior member of the squad but it's a big decision Seem, seems a stretch <clears throat> to say this but familiarity is key in terms of players you know getting used to playing alongside each other like Malumbi if he does play does that give Darrow Shea any uh, increased chance of playing the fact that you know they're I think they're roommates together as well in, in yeah. Birmingham and they're playing together every week for West Brom is that familiarity an, an important thing in Stephen's mind I wonder um, yeah no I think it is in terms of players I, I, I have to say I think the FEI the small bits and pieces you see it of, of it and I think they've been very good and clever in their social media output uh, you really get the, the sense and I've, ta- I've I know some people who work within the staff um, it's not something I'd ever really discuss with Stephen but I, I mean people in the staff you really get a sense there's a real good uh, band of sort of brothers developing here in terms of this group and, and it helps when so many young players are coming through at the same time and they've played a lot of, so I think that's huge in terms of building something I always reference Wales and what they've done you know getting to major championships and progressing and you felt that what Wales the trick with Wales was they built Okay, the Carrot Bale to get the big moments, yeah, never get away from that. But he built it almost like a club team. Yeah. And I, I get the sense this Irish team is, is doing that. So O'Shea and Malumbi's coming, you would imagine, is like the clip with James McLean, uh, Ruben Nathan Collins is brilliant. <laughs> Yeah. Brilliant, and the fact he left it because that's what goes on in dressing rooms. Yeah, and uh, and when the cameras aren't there, it's probably a little bit worse as well. Like to be fair, so I think that um, that is a huge point. I think the, a lot of these lads are growing up together, and I think the evolution of them helps. But we we made this point for the last two years. But we can't control the club form ultimately, and that's why we're going to have to pick on form again. I keep saying, uh, Josh Cullen's form since he's moved has been excellent. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm going to put it out there. I was a I was a doubter at times of, of Josh Cullen, not not because I didn't think he could become a good player or he has all the attributes. I think um, I, I was looking at him going go, go to the next stage, and the, his career development has been brilliant. And I I'm starting to feel now he's he's gone to the next stage. He has to particularly that position it's so important like I remember one of the earlier games where um, Ireland really struggled and looking at the stats as you do as a coach after the game and he never got the ball and, and, and passed to Matt Doherty or, or right wing back at any stage and you're like that's a big problem for someone's going to play in the six as in getting it off uh, the left wing back and going out to the right wing back. Why? Because the opposition have to shift all the way over. And but I've started to see him added those little things to his game, a little bit of confidence, uh, f- more forward passes. I think uh, from him. And he's gone up. Not that he needs to impress me, but he's gone up. In I think he's gone up and improved and improved. I think we've overhyped him to where he is, but he's actually getting closer to that hype, if that makes sense in my view. And I think I think that move to. Uh, to England has really helped him now it's like I've done my hard work I've learned the ropes and he, he's with a manager now that ultimately really trusts him so I think I think now we're starting to see the, the fruits of that and he's still only 26 you know like he, he could be a really good player for the next 6 or 8 years for Ireland and um, and at club level as well so uh, you know fingers crossed they're going to be fighting out for a promotion this year so are you feeling confident like you, you made the point to wrap this up you made the point that Scotland have a load of players who are playing Premier League football and are actually also in good form you know Andy Robertson's out and they've got three other guys who can fit in there who are like all very good yeah <coughs> uh, no I, I think the last window was really difficult for Scotland. He lost their game. 
uh, the playoff for the, the, the World Cup um, they came to Ireland I believe it was a really bad squad and uh, sort of bad um, vibe after being knocked out they're really difficult premiership players don't like those end of season four game windows they're really really difficult where us as fans go just get on with it you're playing for your country it was really difficult I think when you look at their midfield that started that day McGregor uh, Scott McTomney and, and McGinn it's probably better than their midfield in fairness yeah right but they didn't play well in the day we out hassled them we outworked them all of those things don't think it'd be like that in Hamden uh, but their manager's under a lot of pressure and they they need a result he needs a result but momentum is huge in football they, they, we had it we, we look like we've been momentum going into the game they look like they don't uh, so it's probably a big game for both managers in many ways and um, I, I'd make Scotland slight favourites believe it or not even though they, they beat us quite well yeah here. I think they've, they've definitely got a better selection of players it depends on what he does with this window and if it's like one of those oh I'm not going to pick my full team I'm going to broaden my squad here so he buys himself that little bit of time and it's all building for the Euros or if he picks sure his full team to do that. well I was going to say you yeah. pick your full team you go balls out and try and win it and like I heard talking about young players earlier on while I was in the car and I'm going the, the answer to, to we won't get into it now but the answer is you're a manager if they've got to win the next game nowadays football is now cutthroat yeah. you don't get yeah. long term they don't care about the players they care about winning the results well, well, they win it. short answer to you now that now that is the job of the director of football to right. manage the club longer term managers are managing the short term windows they're hoping it's two or three years lucky enough it might be seven or eight Director of footballs are meant to mind these people and say, no, he's a long-term one first. That's yeah. the way it's meant to work. All right. Um, that makes perfect sense, as ever. Vinny, good stuff. Thanks a million for joining Thanks us. So. That's uh, Vinny Perth with us there. Uh, news coming through from Liverpool that Leanne Kiernan is going to be out for several months. She needs surgery. They've just released a statement. It did look bad um, when she got taken off injured after the, um, it was in the middle of the first game of the season. So uh, they're saying that it's going to require surgery and she is set to miss several months is the one uh, Leanne Kiernan says thank you to all the fans who reached out to me your support means a lot I'm looking forward to getting back out there as soon as I can see you soon that's very bad news from an Ireland perspective and for Vera Pau over the next uh, several months she will be needed so fingers crossed the surgery goes well and the recovery comes fast and uh, we wish her the very best with that as well uh, right we're back after these ads with Brendan O'Duffy who is the author of Almost Dogie first here's Republic of Ireland uh, midfielder Jason Malumby speaking to the media uh, yeah I think so I think um, I think it just came to the came to that stage in my career I think um, initially I stayed in for six months before going on loan to Preston and um, I felt the club were um, how would I say interested in giving me more opportunity at the start of the window for um, but yeah I didn't end up getting getting to play as much as I wanted at Brighton so I went out on loan and then I think it just came to a decision where you know, obviously a bit came in from West Brom and they decided to take it so um, and yeah I was, I was happy as well I think I was, it was the right move for me you know I was 21 and I need to get out and um, try and try and find myself and, and play regularly so uh, yeah it's been difficult I suppose because obviously we haven't got the results we want but um, to be honest I think you need a bit of luck in football and I just don't think we've had it I think Listen, the table speaks for itself, and at the end of the day, we're in the business. You need to win games and climb up the table. But I think if if you've watched the ten games, I think there's there's no way we should be where we are. But that's that's how it is. That's football, and we need to 
it's obviously areas we need to need to do better in. But yeah, Dara's um yeah tried for set pieces and stuff. Especially you know um I've known Dara since I was a young lad, so to come up, I feel like we have a good relationship with each other. And um, obviously, he's been captain now um a few games for West Brom this season. Um, he's doing really well. So um oh yeah, Dara's a, a great lad, and I get on really well with him. So. OTB. Right, uh, I'm delighted to say that we have the author of this lovely book, Omos Dogi, uh, Brendan O'Duffy, with us this morning. Brendan, good morning, Jay. How are you? Good morning, Jay. How are is you? Is it Brendan or Brendan? Brendan. Brendan. Okay. Um, I, I was thinking, reading through the book, that I'd love to be able to do this interview in Irish, but unfortunately, uh, my Irish is not good enough. Not to worry. <laughs> but it, the book is, is bilingual. It is. Yeah, because you guys are bilingual. Did you speak Irish at home? We did. Um, the children always spoke Irish to me, Irish to the mum. Not fanatical, but that was the yeah. natural course of events in the home. And they could change mid-sentence from Irish to English if they were changing from one parent to another. Yeah. And that's why it seems so, so natural when you're yeah. thinking through the book that um, large portions of it are, are Osgoelge. And um, I have a big association with the Gaeltacht than Donegal in an area called Ranafast in the northwest of the county. So there would be quite a few readers down there as well. And Irish would be the medium that I would use speaking to them all the time. I have, I have a theory that um, I don't know if it's, it's right or wrong, but my kids are, are in school now and they're um, coming back learning Irish. And I'm realising how much of a, a gap there is in my life that I'm not fluent and... Um, I did, you know, I, uh, I don't know if I got the name right, Mock and Megan uh, is talking about is, you know, there's a hundred words for this and there's a hundred words for this. And I, I really feel that yeah. coming across in the book that there's like um, a depth to the feeling that you're able to explain and understand and experience. And it feels to me that it's it's somehow intensified, Oscar and well, even in the context of Ogie and his death, uh, um, the texts to me were very important that I received. And most of the text that I received in Irish appeared that the wording, that the language was much more intimate or deeper. And they were kind of contemporaneous and they still have a lot of meaning to me. I remember where I was. I remember how I felt when I opened those texts. And as I said, most of them um, that have remained with me would have been texted through the Irish language. I, I totally understand that because there's kind of a loneliness about the English that we use around these circumstances but there's just so many different ways to speak Osgoelga. There seems to be a depth or certainly that uh, they catch the emotions much more so through the medium of Irish um, and a lot of people would have texted me in Irish and in English over that time during the night from the night he died until after the funeral and um, as I said the Irish ones really caught me. I, that was one of the other things that we were chatting about beforehand when we were talking about this. Like, um, there's no template for for dealing with for grief, but it does seem that the contact that you got from people was one of the things that really gave you comfort. And if if there's anything that anybody takes from this is like. If you know anybody who's going through anything, or if anybody's experiencing grief, reach out. Certainly, reach out. Um we didn't know what was going to happen. I remember taking Ogie's body home from the morgue in Navan and on the outskirts of Castle Blaney, everybody appeared to be out on the streets. The shops were closed. Half the road was closed. The Fogs, that's the local team in Castle Blaney, all their teams from juvenile to senior level were out. That really took us by surprise. And it struck me at that moment that this really isn't an ordinary funeral and that we are only playing a part in it as other people are playing their parts as well and kind of even on that journey home in my own area I'm a native of 
Cromartin Club, an intermediate club. Again, they were out on the road there, as they were in Clontibret, and again, the Monaghan Harps throughout the town. And that really caught me off guard. Nobody knew officially what time we were taking Ogie's remains home from the hospital. But nevertheless, they were out there. And I think as time has gone on, I appreciate the relevance and the significance of that support more and more. That it certainly got us through those early days. Yeah. And um, that they were there for... It was overwhelming and it seemed to capture the national consciousness, um, his death. I don't know, a young fella after playing a match, captaining team, winning team on the way home. I suppose all those circumstances together um, added to it. Yeah, of course. And I think, like, obviously it gets you through that uh, immediate short-term period when, you know, I, you know, again, I don't think anybody's ever going to understand exactly what you go through. But in the months afterwards, you can lean back on that experience too when when the people are gone and when the, the busyness of the funeral, like we're, we're great in Ireland around funerals, but it's yeah. the weeks after and the months after when there's moments of silence that normally you would have been filling with conversations where you can lean back on that. Yeah, I mean, you have to accept that. People are going to get on with their own lives. I couldn't expect anything from a- any more from anybody else, particularly um, the Monaghan County Board and even more so Monaghan Harps, the personnel in there, the officers, the players, that they really took three, four days out of their lives to spend with us, be it guards of honour, taking chairs to the house, food, everything, sitting up the last night with him, um, his uh, teammates on the senior Harps team. Uh, like when you speak with those people, Brendan, the people that line the streets, and and and, and I recall your your words even at the at the graveside as well in that Lurkin on the day of that scorching hot day of the funeral, and and I was there in the in the wake house as well the night before when a lot of stories were being swapped and a few laughs as well as mm-hmm. tears amongst a lot of the teammates. It strikes me maybe for people who don't realise, you might just tell us the type of person Ogie was, and and also funnily enough the type of person you learned Ogie to be after his death because I'm sure a lot of stories came out thereafter. Well, I was going to point that out and it's one of the first sentences in the book. Um, We didn't really know Ogie until after his death. I suppose that's true of anybody. We know one side of a person. But it takes somebody in another um, sphere, be it in the workplace or socialising, that will add something to that as well. And we heard so many stories and they were all positive and they were all very uplifting. I suppose a few adjectives to describe him. Well, this is as a father, a loving father saying this, but he was very determined. He was tenacious. Um, he was loyal, um, hardworking, humble, um, in that he had many friends who had no interest in football. And even he might come from a big match and meet some other guys and football wouldn't be mentioned. And uh, um, he had no problem with that. He was carefree, um, happy-go-lucky, um, all is in good form. Incredibly positive, good mental health throughout his life. Um, mischievous, I'm not making him out to be anything but. He was a devil at times um, and mischievous. And maybe that in itself gave him a bit of credibility when he did speak. And uh, what struck me as well is how he appeared to have such a cross-section of friends. And during the time of the funeral, um, we had people from Lithuania, from Latvia, from Poland. Many people from the travelling community came into the house. It was the the natural thing for them to do. And again, they were out on the streets um, in the Guard of Honour on the day of his funeral. So he seemed to have this um, knack or skill, if you like, of getting on well with everybody, irrespective of their background. It was it was a sense of it was nearly a sense of leadership as well. The fact that he was he was nineteen, and yet lads in the club team who were in their early to mid thirties, when he spoke, 
it carried weight and, and you know he had that lead those leadership qualities which is quite remarkable for, for someone of his age yeah and you know at 19 and he kind of appeared to move seamlessly into the senior team that he the people did listen and again we didn't know that until after the funeral his birth was in early november it coincided with the harps last championship match um and for that occasion the rest of the team sent messages to him posthumously um, a kind of complimenting him and that came out about the leadership qualities that he had for them and how he always had their back and that he would support them and that they could depend on him and that is all very consoling for us um, I certainly wasn't that boy at tw- 19, 20 years of age um, I didn't realise that Ogie was we knew snippets of stuff here and there like he helped people with their mental health um, he helped people whose cars broke down he gave people lifts home at nights at the weekend because he wouldn't be drinking because of matches or with the county etc and you certainly would hear him in and out on the landing throughout the night, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, bringing to, he didn't share that with us. But those stories gradually came together during the three or the four days of the week. When did you make the decision that you were going to chronicle all this and, and write it down and have the record kept yeah. and published that you have published? Well, um, I've written a number of books, in, in textbooks in, in the Irish language for Irish medium, Gale College, so it's nothing new to me, writing, if you like. Um, shortly after the funeral, I thought about taking notes and keeping notes, and just to remember everything that did happen, there were so many facets to it. So the notes got greater, and then it was into essay format, and then it, became, it came into a book. And um, I'd say it was therapeutic for me in hindsight can't be sure of that but I think it was because I'm as good now as I would expect myself to be Um, but I am and just it was there was some sense of that you were doing him justice that you were paying tribute to him by putting this inside two covers yeah and that makes sense I think and and the other thing is that you don't want to forget any of the good stories that like so Shane's talking about that Mm. night like Mm. obviously it's uh, is it traumatic to revisit any of that or at this stage now some of it's traumatic to revisit some of it is but that doesn't say it's a bad thing to do it sometimes you have to face that um, and uh, I suppose I would have said to myself oh, during the summer in holidays from school, I must give myself a day or half a day to just to um, go through all this, the most traumatic elements of it, and allow myself to cry. Now, I didn't get that half day due to comings and goings and other commitments, but um, I suppose it's not the done thing to be crying. So I think most times when we shed a tear, we try to conceal it or we try to, to restrict it. But, in, but this allowed me late at night to shed a tear privately. Yeah. And that, I think, has been beneficial. I, I, I think, it, like, I don't think anybody would uh, begrudge you that. Or I, I think maybe we all need to start having those conversations where it's mm. totally fine. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a very natural thing. Like, why did we evolve yeah. as human beings with the facility to cry? Probably because our body needs the, the, yeah. the yeah. physical release of yeah. it, not and just I, the mental I, release. I, I have a large circle of friends who have been very good to me for the last year and the ha- half probably sick listening to me talking about Ogie but they afforded me that opportunity and that certainly has been advantageous yeah and and with the book obviously um like we're asking you questions and again what's it right for us to ask you what's it right for us to talk about what's it what's it 
like what we absolutely well, have there's to no ask embargo you. on anything. No, but you, you know, know what I mean. Like, yeah, what, what, what is the right thing? It, yeah. We don't know there's, because there's nothing right and there's nothing wrong. And grief doesn't mean the same thing to two uh, to people. There are four of us: myself, my wife Esther, two girls in the house, Claire and Anya, and we're on four parallel paths. And those paths don't really cross over. And we don't talk. We talk in general about Ogie and we reminisce about it, but we don't go into much depth. Maybe we're afraid to. Because every other person is hurting as much as you. And they're on the same journey, maybe further ahead of you, maybe approaching it in a different way. So we respect that. One of the things, Brendan, that that struck me, and that that parallel pathways thing really struck me in the book as well, you're talking about grief, was was even on the night itself trying to trying to deal with it. And you, you name-checked Paddy McGinn, the local priest in Monaghan. And if you don't mind me saying the line that he that you've written in the book... The line that Paddy said was, Ogie's gone tonight, he has left us tonight. And, and you emphasise in the book how, how it made some of the gut-wrenching moments later on in the, in the following days maybe a little bit easier. I, he certainly. Like he actually shook me on the shoulder and repeated that and emphasised that a few times. Now, how did that make things easier for me over the following few days? I think um, the coffin or his remains leaving the house or even the actual burying and lowering into the grave that I know he was already gone and I had accepted that from a father McGinn had said to me and I think yes it did make it easier um, that the, uh, those moments were merely symbolic that he was gone his spirit his soul whatever you want to call it it was the mortal remains only that were with us uh, that whole process that you, you detail um, you know it, it is obviously it's, it's heartbreaking uh, and yet at the same time I think the fact that you've shared it in such detail will help people who read it who have experienced grief themselves. And I don't know if that was part of your aim when you wrote it, because, you, you know, the motivation is clearly to, to do justice to a life that was really well lived. But I do think that, like, the more we talk about these things, the more that there is a, uh, a shorthand. Like, it, we're, we're really good at funerals in Ireland, right? But I'm not sure that we're great at dealing with the aftermath of the funeral when the silence comes. Well, I suppose it's going to become more private and more personal. And you ha- that's when you have to deal with it yourself or in a family unit. And everybody goes back to their own um, l- lives. And even in the sporting world, the number of um, kind of dis- and tragic deaths like uh, Red Oak in Sligo and the Camogie player in, in County, in Kate in County um, Galway. And pro- just a short time was that after it, um, the Kilkenny in Kilkenny and St. Cairns College, the fourth year student there. So other tragedies take over and regrettably more and more tragedies come to the fore. And what struck me as well was the number of people who came into the house um, giving us their condolences who also suffered similar losses over the years be it young siblings or young sons or daughters so we have no monopoly on grief and every one of those people um, have the entitlement to a vice just as I have and I'm very mindful of that but that I think I'm you've actually helped them in a way by, by, by so clearly expressing what you've gone through in the detail that you've gone through it is really helpful to people. When you think about it, we're we're all going to suffer grief at some point in our lives because of the very nature of human life is we all die, right? But uh, we don't really have templates for it or uh, conversations openly about crying and about, um, you know, I know know recently there's been some more books about it, but 
uh, we're not very good at talking to people. I'm not feeling great because I'm grieving for something, you know. Um, and I think that... A number of people already would have spoken to me about the book and where their parents or somebody belonged to them that it has helped them, certain passages that they've read that it resonated with them on some level. And I'm delighted about that, that if it would help. And that's why I've done a number of it radio interviews and an article in the Sunday Independent that Rodney Edwards penned shortly after the funeral to hopefully that it will help. I feel so indebted to so many people that were good to us that if I can give something back to somebody else who is in mourning or grieving, and I'm not going to... I suppose when I go into wake houses now, I say a lot less. I would be a lot less dogmatic, do this and do that, and this is what it would be. No, it's so different for so many people. And to afford people the opportunity or the space to talk and to be there for them, to listen and to, to support them, whatever they want to do, it, whatever help they want from you. Yeah, I, I even recall speaking at the the, the Monon Harps event in the Hillgrove Hotel that yourself and, and your daughter Claire were at where, where Sean Kavanagh spoke about the loss of Cormac McAnallan and kind of compared it to that of Ogie in, in, in some regards and I know Donald McAnallan, Cormac's brother I think was, was in the Wakehouse He at was, one stage. Donald, yes it, it must be, I don't know if comforting is the word but it must be in some way uh, nice to, to speak to people who have gone through it before it is, and I suppose um, it gives you a bit of confidence here. This guy is a number of years after the tragic death of his brother, and he's got through it or getting through it. And that is my objective, to be on the same road as him and to continue, and that, uh, you know, hopefully things will work out reasonably well for us. I suppose um, I don't go to the grave too often, and maybe once a week, brief visits. Um, I don't want the conversation of death and dying and the deceased to become a priority in my life. Um, I don't want to be morbid or negative. I'd like to think that my um, default setting is jovial and positive, and I'd like to continue with that. So I'm not great at sharing um, other people's experience in a graveyard setting. Yeah, and, um, that's understandable. Yeah, whereas my wife would and go, go around to other graves and console people who are coming and going. Now, uh, it's interesting that really on his right and on his left, there are two other Harps people as well. The one on his right um, would be um, Charlie Shalvey, who would be the father of the secretary of the club and he's fairly recently deceased and uh, Nicola the daughter was such an immense strength to us throughout this and she posted something online the morning of Ogie's funeral quite early on and it was very touching and very poignant you know and all of what was written and said about him including by Shane on the Friday evening here on Off the Ball um, it was so so touching and it's included in the book um, that it, 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 it gets to you inside now a lot of these articles if you like the epicentre of them was Ogie but they broadened out to maybe some facet of GAA or Monaghan GAA or clubs losing players or players struggling to keep players or some aspect of football but I suppose the starting point was with Ogie and they finished off the wrapped off a lot of these articles about Ogie as well and that that's a legacy and like it's it's terrible to talk about somebody so young having a legacy without actually actually having the opportunity to live it but like and and the book is a legacy in some ways as well it is and um it will always be there as part of my tribute to him. I suppose I devoted most of the year after his death in trying to perpetuate his memory. And I have often noticed that it's a fear among people that their loved ones will be forgotten. 
but I don't think that will happen with Ogie and even on his tribute night in in Monaghan Town the county, the county council or the municipal council um, renamed a road Schlee Ogie Egoffey we felt Schlee was a milder or softer word than Boher. I think in the Irish language there's eight words for roads depending on Cousin and Casson and Ballock Ballock Moor and Boher and Schlee we felt Schlee was the better one or the best one that was available and in consultation with the council there was a plaque um, unveiled outside the Harps complex as well and then the book was launched by Conor Callan inside so it was a big night, it was a very uplifting night a very positive night yeah. and I, there were people there in the audience who had suffered loss themselves um, I mentioned Red Oak I mentioned the girl from um, Galway there was Eve Bourne a girl under uh, 12 years of age who played football with her club in Mahratloon who was um, killed in a farming accident or farming related accident and I mentioned her I referenced her on that night but her, there was an auntie in the audience and came up and appreciated that people like to be remembered yeah no it's true uh, Schlee means way right yeah. and Ogie's way essentially is kind of what you've uh, one of the things that seems like you've um, understood more uh, from the stories that people have told you uh, the lives he's touched you know, not to um, bring it back it's a wonderful life right that whole sense of you don't really know about the lives that you touch until you get the opportunity and then mm-hmm. you know yeah, and hopefully that we are touching out and we're reaching out to some people through the book and anything else that we've done, be it the article in the Sunday Independent or the Radio 1 interview or indeed this interview or the Radio Nagelthacht interview. Just to mention that, um, it was to start off as a short interview but it evolved into a full one-hour documentary presented by Michelle Nikriana and produced by Donald McRory and um, it's actually nominated for a Nimrod award now um, next month but I would know both Michelle and Donald quite well and her links in the interview with me I found very final that uh, this is somebody else saying that for the first year after his death I could speak about Ogie that he was dead that he was gone I'm not stupid but I'm not sure if I realised that if I acknowledged that inside if I recognised I'm not sure what verb to use but funny enough after the tribute night uh, um, and a year had passed it became more final and more real for me in that I couldn't refer back to this day last year what was Ogie doing or was he away working or was he in the car or was he playing a match was, he wasn't with us this time last year so that even crossover was um, significant that there is now uh, certainly a realisation that he's gone and I, actually a number of people who had suffered loss at the wake house told me you won't realise for a year that he's dead that was true. That was true. How how important are items? You know, in, in, I'm thinking back to. Well, I remember at the, at the burial day. I think the was it the down or the Donegal players came over. Uh, the, the Donegal players certainly came over that had played in the previous week. I know the down. There was a moments minutes applause at the Ulster Under Twenty final that Ogie should have been leading the team out at the, the following week or two. Um, and you have at home, and, and it's mentioned in the book as well, the framed. Donegal jersey from that game and also a framed Monaghan jersey unwashed that, that Ogie wore literally 
couple of hours yeah, before the, it and I suppose it's the closest we'll get to him I think that's mentioned in the book that his DNA is still on it it's framed it's unwashed and that was purposely done like that I would collect memorabilia I'd been doing so from the under the 18 um, or the under 17 final and that campaign where they won the league and um, championship double in Ulster in 2018 and I felt like years to come when we we're gone maybe Oakley'd like to show all these things to his um, friends or to his family and on that tribute night there was a kind of a display or I think exhibition might be too grand of a word to describe it but there was a, a mini exhibition of everything belonged to him jerseys football programme newspaper cuttings medals etc we have a large box at home and jerseys and that and everything's in that and as you say Shane um, the Donegal jersey worn by the number six um is on the wall and ironically um, I would have known him and his parents very well from the Gidor Club um, neighbouring club to neighbouring area to Ranafast if you like and the goalkeeper Dahi Roberts as well I would know his parents very well and um, they were playing that night and Ogie would have met them over the years and went and acknowledged them at the beginning of the match and again at the end of the match and um, they were the families were with us the following day, as were many from the Donegal team and the management from the under twenty team were with us, um, including um, Eamon McGee and um, Kui McGarvey as well, or sorry, Oni McGarvey, um, another Ranafast man. So this help from the GA community, it wasn't limited to the Harps or to the Monaghan County Board. It was in Ulster and indeed we got so many letters from inter-county players and retired inter-county players from throughout the country and from the parents of players many we didn't know and indeed many people that I hadn't met in my life for the last 30 years maybe yeah. but they would they could tell me what I said to them verbatim 25, 30, 32 years ago when they suffered loss or maybe somebody that uh, you helped me with a CV or you did a mock interview with me or you uh, give me reference books for a course I was doing or you phoned up somebody on my behalf or whatever. The number of people, I would feel that anything I gave for the rest of my life all came back from me um, uh, twofold, threefold since Obi's death. Yeah. I, I think I, I was at... Um Nia Fitzpatrick, who's the grief counsellor, I think she's written a couple of books on the subject. Now her sister Dara Fitzpatrick mm-hmm. was, of course, one of the rescue 116 uh, helicopter pilots. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it was her that spoke about, as, as difficult as it is to remember, the last conversation she had with Dara and how trivial maybe it seemed at the time. Uh, but everyone who has lost someone, and yourself included, has had to, to deal with that. And, and even though probably looking back, Brendan, it's, it's a trivial conversation, it's a tangible thing for you to hold on to now that conversation with with Ogie? Yeah, well, it might have been a fragmented conversation. It was really before he went to the match. My wife Esther was in Medjugorje on pilgrimage. They were playing in Enniskillen um, that evening against Donegal. Um, I think he had to be out in Clotten, which is the centre of excellence, where the bus was leaving at half past three. Um, His younger sister, Anya, was making the dinner. The dinner had to be ready at ten to three, and a kind of our day was revolving around this that he would be gone at the right time that he wanted seemed a little bit nervous kept asking the time what time is it now five past three what time is it ten past three what time is it a quarter past three and around this time and maybe an hour beforehand he would have been um, 
visited by a number of Harps players, just wishing them well. You know, and good luck for the match, and coming into the street, spending a few minutes and talking to him. Now, Esther was speaking to him after the match, and um, we went for a takeaway on the way home, half past ten, eleven o'clock, and as we were leaving the, the takeaway, my younger daughter, Anya, got a voice message for him um, to get him a takeaway, so she returned into the takeaway, got him that, and... Um, that takeaway remained on the table throughout the night. It's so heartbreaking, and um, you know, I, I know I can. We can see how difficult it is to to revisit it. But it's I, just certain moments like that, you know, leaving the house to go to the match on, the, on that last day. There are certain things that would get to you, and even during the time of the funeral, there were certain things impacted on me um, more than others. If you like, as I mentioned, Castle Blaney and how the streets were thronged there, um, the harps staying up at in the wake house on the last night, um, and two of his friends who have nothing to do with football, would know the shape of a football, spent the night in his room, um, and the guards of honour from the house to the cathedral, the senior team filing into the house um, at about nine o'clock on the previous night, including Seamus McEnany, the team man, or Seamus was with them, and Andy Callan, who was the under-20 manager, Seamus, Banty McEnany was with them then, the under-18 level. Um, I suppose watching the video on the first occasion um, was difficult as well, the video off the funeral. The round of applause that we got going into Old Cross Square, um, you know, a spontaneous round of applause from the people in the Guard of Honour as we were approaching the cathedral. Looking at the Derry Minor team um, that were there as well that um, and the Down team who they were to play the following week on elevated ground in the graveyard. Um, the, I mentioned the text messages earlier, quite poignant, very touching, very deep, very intimate. Um, so those are kind of standout moments if you like um, and I suppose this synopsis the generosity the kindness that we receive from so many people it was overwhelming really you know and it's a sign of the lives that you guys have obviously touched um, separate to him and then the lives that he touched as well and like you know we were a sports programme here and he was obviously a young sports star but the involvement with the community it's obviously not just the GA, it's the Irish language and it's everything else that you've been involved in as well that all those communities rallied around. There's no doubt about that. And initially he might have started playing soccer at six or seven years of age, um, and, but soon realised that it was Gaelic football that was embedded in the community and soon realised that it was the game of Gaelic football that had the national, the high national profile and that this is what he should be at. Um, and he never. He was also interested in boxing and gymnastics and rugby, but there weren't simply enough days in the week to bring him to everything. He did play basketball at school level and club level. Club, the Blackwater Steelers, he would have spent a number of years swimming with Slave B and represented them as well. He was just agile. He was an athlete, and yeah. irrespective of what sport it was, you know, and I suppose they were all complementing each other and to his benefit. Uh, yeah, just from my perspective, Brendan. Obviously, uh, before we finish, like, uh, and I've said it before in that in that chair, it was that the the funeral was obviously something that I'd never I'd never seen the likes of before in Monaghan, and I'm li- unlikely to see it ever again. Um, I think the the 
the strength you showed in <clears throat> speaking at the the graveside for the for the ten minutes or whatever it was was I'd never seen anything like it, and the family and and the way it was handled um, by the GA and by yourselves, um, and look, <clears throat> just appreciate you coming in and and I think I think I had the no book- intention to speak at the funeral at all or in the graveyard, but my wife nudged me to say a word of thanks to Andy Callan, the under twenty manager, who had spoken before that, and then when I did take the microphone, I felt it incumbent on me to thank a few people and maybe to emphasise the work of the GAA Mon and Harps and all the Mon and Harps around the country um, that for what they do for young people and irrespective of whatever grants they get from national government it's not half enough for the work they do be it mental health and I just pose the question what would the majority of young lads and the girls be doing if they weren't playing Gaelic football that they are actually filling a massive void there on behalf of the government to ensure positive mental health among our young people um, We talked about the, the Irish words having multiple meanings what, what does almost mean to almost you? Almost would be tribute Right. Yeah, I suppose, and it's, it's broader than tribute it is, as well. It's, it's, it's sometimes it's difficult actually to um, specifically translate a word from one language to another. But the easiest thing to say is that it's tribute, but it's deeper. It's broader than that. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it's respected and it takes mass it, it, respect into it as well. When I was googling it, mass was what came across as well, and it's like so. Um, I, I think you've, you've managed to pull it off, and obviously, it's. Uh, it's been a heartbreaking work to do, but you, you, it, it feels like it's given you and I hope your family and anybody who reads it some some room. There's no doubt about it. It has been beneficial and we have that as a memory and it's there. It's uh, available in the shops and it's selling well. And it's a kind of a present, really, to the gift to people. It's a tenor. It would have cost much more to, you know, when you're doing them in small, relatively small numbers um, to be printed. Um, you're not going to make money in a book. That wasn't the intention. It's really a gift to the community and the GA people. So while it's a book of loss and grief, it's also a book of the vibrancy of youth and about football, and particularly football in Monaghan and in the Harps. And if anybody does want to get their hands on it, where can they get it? It's in Easton's in Monaghan Town, in Super Value in Castleblaney, and Bordies in Carrick Macross. I'd be similar enough to, to Jaron that my, my Irish has probably let, let, must let it go since the, the leaving start. I think I said on, on, on the day when I was speaking about him in here, Nivea Lehederishan, we'll never see his likes again. But I think you've done a you've done a seriously important thing here in writing the book, and you probably don't even realise it yet, Brendan. But a lot of people are going to pick up copies of this book and take something from it because we all go through loss at some point. So fair play for, yeah. for doing it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a million for coming in today. That's today's show. We leave it there. See you tomorrow. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.